Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Nevers Podcast, where we talk more about the Nevers. I'm Lee. I'm here. I'm joined by Spencer. Spencer, how are you today? Doing well, man. How about you? I am doing well, Spencer. We have not spoken a word about this episode. We have purposely avoided each other all day long. Um, big episode. What did you think? Definitely a big episode. A lot of major scenes. Honestly, some of the best scenes they've done yet on the show. Maybe one scene in particular was absolutely amazing, eye-popping bit of filmmaking that they did. The overall episode, very mixed bag. I felt like the show is still going on at far too fast of a breakneck pace, and it loses a bit of the power of certain scenes because it doesn't really give them time to simmer. There was a lot of build-up to eventually get to some scenes that really mattered, that have major plot implications in ways we didn't really see coming. But the overall episode kind of gives me a kind of a bitter, bit of a bitter taste, just because I feel like there's a lot of wasted potential with just how determined they are to race through the material. Yeah, I, I, I think the pacing is going to be uh, it's going to be a challenge for this show. I think it's probably going to be something that you're going to hear about. Um, you know, out there when you're looking at criticisms of the show, you're looking at reviews of the show, other pods, you shouldn't be listening to other pods, only our Absolutely pod. Not. But Absolutely if you, not. if you get done with our pod and you have uh, more space in your day, which I don't know how you do it's as long as we go, um, <laughs> uh, you're probably going to hear about the pacing, right? That that's, that's a problem for this show. But I thought the episode was good. I thought it was a filler episode for the first 50 minutes. And then 10 minutes, I thought, well, obviously not a filler episode. They just yeah, whoop, yeah, they moved yeah. that plot forward. I thought the dialogue was particularly good. I actually had some funny moments, some belly laughs, a few guffaws, if you some will. Humor, sir, um, really. I felt like they really tried for humor in episode one and two. It didn't always land. I felt like it was a little um, ham-handed. Uh, but there was some good humor in this one. So I'm excited to talk about it with you. We will go through our standard recap. We will go into our segments. Our segments will include best line of the episode, I and I alone, and best line of the emperor, best line of the episode. And we will go to uh, best uh, character arcs, and then we will do booby prize on worst character arcs. Mm-hmm. And that will be our segments. And Spencer, I'm, I'm going to throw a little cold water at you. Are you ready for a new segment? No, no, I'm not. What the hell okay, are you doing? Okay, I'm throwing it at you. Uh, let's just talk theories, because I have a theory. You have a theory. I got a theory. Uh, stole it from Reddit, but I got a theory that I want to talk <laughs> about. Um, and I think you know we're we're starting to get far enough along the the yeah. that we can start to actually make some theories, right? That, that, the theories would have made a lot of sense in our first our, our coverage of episode one, but now that we're here, episode three, four, uh, I think we can start talking theories. So maybe we've we'll throw that seen, one in there as well. We we've seen things. We have material. We have conflicting information. It is right ground for us to theorize. Absolutely. So we will do a bit of that on the back end of the episode. Before we get there, a little housekeeping. The podcast continues to do pretty well. Um, you know, we're getting more listeners every day. We really appreciate everybody for for listening to us here on the Nevers More podcast. Just a reminder that this is indeed a Mangum Talks podcast. If you never checked out any of our other podcasts, you can check them out at mangumtalks.com. And while you're there, please click the upper right-hand corner. There's a little button called Contact Us. Click that and just drop us a line. Let us know, what do you think of the pod? What do you like? Don't like? Do you have any questions for us? Do you have any ideas for segments? We welcome all of that stuff. I promise that anything that uh, that comes in, I will read Um I don't think Spencer will. I will curate it. <laughs> I will feed it to him. Uh, I will give him the cliff notes, a brief. I'll give him a, a legal brief uh, on the on the actual comments that come in. But I will I will read everything. So de- definitely go to mangumtalks.com. Check out our other pods, but also drop us a line. Let us know what you think of the podcast. Anything we could uh, we could do more of or we could do better. We would appreciate all feedback. Damn Spencer, sure. anything you want to add on the housekeeping before we jump into the recap? 
No, just to say again, as Lee said, we've had some truly impressive comments. We have some listeners that are just sharp-eyed and aware and caught a lot of information that we did not even have a hope of noticing. So we very much look forward to everybody commenting on the things that we overlooked or new ways to think about things or just to straight up tell us that we're wrong. All of that's appreciated. All of it look forward to it. As Lee said, I don't read it directly. That's for other people to do. But from the very curated list that Lee has provided me, y'all are brilliant. We love to hear from you. So I do want to give a shout out to the listener who wrote us about 12 seconds after our first episode posted and corrected me that it's penance and not penance. I, um, I now cringe. Right. I now cringe thinking about we went through the first two, like first episode and a half of me just saying penance, which is a hundred percent wrong. Shout out to this listener for correcting me because I did notice that they, uh, Amalia did refer to this character during this episode and said penance very clearly. Uh, so hand up. I'm not right about everything. Uh, wrong about that one. So thank you for the listener for correcting us. And that's the type of feedback we want. So definitely go to mangumtalks.com up right hand corner, click contact us, drop us a line, give us the feedback. We like all of it. We welcome it all good and bad. But for now, Spencer, I think it's time to jump into the meat of this episode. Let's do the recap. Episode three, the numbers, this one titled Ignition. Ready when you are. We start at night and there seems to be uh, a lot of sketchy people doing something. And uh, Mm -hmm. one thing I love about this show is they do not shy away from tropes. So when you get a scene that's at night, sketchy people, (laughs) weird delivery, you know what you get? You get the sketchy music in the background. It's it's almost like comforting because you're like, oh, I know what I'm supposed to feel now. Like, I know what this scene is. The, 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 this scene opened like a warm coat, just in terms of, I know exactly the points that you're going to hit. This is an illicit shipment. This is a back alley. This is some kind of Moriarty operation. I'm with you. And then it went a little bit different. Yeah, it does. So uh, it looks like a load of something is being delivered into a warehouse of some kind. As this is happening, we catch, whoop, we catch a real quick uh, shot of Bonfire, who is watching. And uh, she says, pretty. And then uh, whoosh, lights up the shipment. Bonfire tells the Beggar King he is done on... Bonfire then tells these folks, tell the Beggar King he's done on these docks. No pay-ups, no shipment. She says, things now belong to Bonfire and there's a new sheriff in town, ladies and gentlemen. Bonfire. Mm -hmm. Um, If he decides to argue the case or send someone else, uh, there's not a shadow he can hide at. Now, we know from Amalia's conversations with Horatio and others... That the Beggar King has one hell of a reputation in London at this point. So Bonfire Annie out here picking fights with him, I thought was really, really interesting. But that's not the question I want to ask you. Spencer, why does Bonfire want these shipments to stop? Is she wanting the shipments to stop or is she taking territory? Is this, you know, like her shooting up a corner in Baltimore or is this her trying to stop the drug trade? I was leaning towards more the former rather than the latter, though I don't know. I thought this was effectively a power move on her part to establish herself as her own form of, I was going to say kingpin, but queenpin, if you will. But there's no, like, so we, we, uh, we'll continue with the recap here in a second, but we do find out that Bonfire has kind of split from Malady's group. She and so she she's kind really of on, part of it. Yeah, she seems to be on her own. That, that contract's over. You you correctly, I was wondering about the org chart of Malady's group in the last episode. You correctly identified her as an independent contractor. Uh, it seems like her contract's up. She was not renewed. <laughs> so uh, Bonfire out there on her own. It just is, you know, it's strange to me that she would be picking a fight with the Beggar King. 
I mean, it mm-hmm. seems like going, I mean, that's like, you know, like new, you're new in school and you just pick a fight with the biggest kid in the lunchroom. Like it's a weird move on Bonfire's part. And it's also a little strange. I thought that she would care about what's being shipped in. Um, and it kind of made me like, I mean, maybe I'm reading too much in this, but made me think maybe is Bonfire like, like 25% good. I, it's hard to say. I mean, we got to see in this episode that since she's not actually in Malady's camp or in New Way Believes in Her Cause and is truly the kind of hired mercenary that we thought that she was, she's just an opportunist. How she got hired by Malady seems an interesting question because I don't imagine Malady has much the way of coin to offer somebody, but who knows? But it seems at least what we see here that percentages, she's... Percentages, percentages, Spencer. I covered this in a previous episode. This is what entrepreneurs do. I'll give you a percent. A percent of carnage. Is there a, is there a, is there an imminent value in the kind of carnage that Malady's looking to inflict? I doubt that. I agree, though. There's maybe an implication here that there's some other purpose beyond this, beyond just simply pure self-interest. She's certainly framing it in that way. My initial gut is that she's looking to stake her own position in power. But if that is true, she is suicidally overconfident. It's just a strange first move. But anyway, right after Bonfire's speech, we see that Amalia was watching her. She confronts Bonfire and Penance finally gets to use her gun. So we made a lot of fun of the gun. We yeah. did. It looked a little stupid. Still, it still looks stupid. Uh, but it's kind of dope. Like, it works. Wh- it works. Still, still looks stupid. <laughs> it works, though. I will not deny that. Anyway, it, the gun it, apparently shoots some sort of... Was that goo? It wasn't ice. It was like a it, goo. Substance. It, was like a, it was like a hardening foam, I kind of interpreted it to be. Yeah, some sort of lacquer. Or some sort of, uh, like, I don't know. Well, I don't know whatever it is. But it, some she sort of it something. as snuffer. Well, that, it's not that. Uh, but She it's, loves her names. She, she does love her names. She's some sort of goo, and it sticks to Annie's hand, and that prevents her from lighting up. Sweet little invention there. Amalia then punches her. That's a go-to move from Amalia. Penis does not like it. <laughs> Penis uh, stops her and says, uh, this scenario is a sight more violent than advertised, basically telling Amalia, look, you didn't tell me you were going to come here to like fight her. Um, Penis, for good reason, doesn't like that Amalia immediately started punching, and I don't either as part of the uh, part of the, the, the audience here. Penance and Amalia start bickering over Amalia fighting and Bonfire whoosh, lights up, incinerates the goo. Question for you here on the goo. It seemed that as soon as Bonfire got angry, she could just get rid of the goo in like half a second, right? It, it seems like it's, a, it's practical effect is that it can put out her fire, but she can just summon more fire. It, it's a very temporary kind of, you know, snuffing tactic, if you will. Yeah, Bonfire then says she's willing to parlay, but they better stop bickering or she's going to light everybody up. Amalia then dispatches Penance to deal with the burning carriage. Then we get down to business. Bonfire wants to know how they snuck up on her. Penance says the Beggar King's men are super attentive. Says Penance even sneezed once. Pretty funny. That, that was the first laugh I had of the episode when Amalia said eh, Penance eh, sneezed eh. once during it. I don't know. That was pretty funny. Uh, Bonfire wants to know how they knew she'd be there. Amalia explains that she saw it. It's her turn. Remember? And then we find out that Amali is actually there to recruit Bonfire. All right. Uh, second big question of the episode. What do you think of the move to try to recruit Bonfire? So you know that her, her contract's up with the previous company. Uh, you see you, you, know, you see the LinkedIn status change. Um, do you go after Bonfire immediately? That seemed like what? an interesting move. Wait. They don't know her. They act like they do, but they don't know her from Adam. Um, but they seem to be aiming the idea that she's really damn powerful in a really useful way. And they need people that are really damn powerful in a useful way. And they're hoping, without evidence, but hoping 
that she had a similar kind of emotional reaction to Mary's abilities that they did. And that that in some way is going to force its way through her crusty exterior to get down to a gooey center that they then can work with. This is their hope. I think it's more built around, we're under threat, people are dying, you are really damn strong in a way that is just useful, please join us. Odds of that succeeding? I think Penance had much greater hopes than uh, Amalia really did. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a tough call here. I think that um, it kind of, it seems like Amalia has a character flaw, and this character flaw is being overly familiar with people. Mm-hmm. Um, she gets a little chummy with people a little fast and it seems to bite her. And I think it, it, it didn't do her, uh, any, any, any service here with, with bonfire. So get back to the recap. Apparently Molly is motivated to do this because Bonfire's warning during the last episode. Molly seems to think that bonfire saved her life. There was that comment that she said bonfire saved her life. I'm not sure she saved her life. What? Uh, it was very strange. Uh, Monfire pushes back on this nose and says she's nice, but her natural instinct is to burn things down. Bonfire's still trying to be firmly in the villain camp here. Mm-hmm. Um, she goes on to explain that she doesn't know where Malady is. Apparently, she quit Malady's group. So there we go. That's that big reveal there that she's now off on her own. Um, Amalia's sales pitch seems to be that the touched are being killed. They need her help. Bonfire quote, I'm all fine by myself. Molly says she can steal. It says you can steal. You can still feel it. Mary's song, Bonfire. Good quote here from Bonfire. It isn't real. It's a fantasy. You don't trust it any more than I do. Might as well um, uh, be that carriage full of opium I just torched. Amalia, uh, mm-hmm. car full of what? And then the episode turns into comedy. Uh, a little slapstick here. Uh, uh. Yeah. I'm not crazy about the I, so the comedy I talked about that I liked in this episode was not this whole carriage of opium burning that this whole shtick was a little much for me. I found Penance's addition to these scenes really tonally in. You don't really, like her. You got it out for Penance. Well, particularly in this scene, just because I thought she was really tonally contrasting with what I did like about this scene in terms of the interaction between Amalia and uh, Bonfire Annie. Of where I kind of liked the tone of that, I liked the focus of that, and the philosophy debate between the two, and kind of interested to see where that goes, given the inherently contrasting roles they've previously been set up as. And meanwhile, Penance is just kind of annoyingly bickering with Amalia during this scene, which I which actually kind of enjoyed Bonfire Henry calling him out of this, oh, please, for the love of God, I'll talk with you, just stop talking to each other. And then I like that she told her to stop being a fucking bully. Like, so don't just start punching people right away. I, you know, maybe she was a little like um, uh, juvenile in her approach to that, but it was a fair point to raise. Fair point. Bear in mind, person that was seemingly building up to an incinerating an opera house full of people and directly working with Malady. Maybe keep your guns drawn just a little bit when it comes to her and stop bickering so that she can just. If in any way, they had no way of knowing this. If in any way Bonfire Annie was a more villainous person, they would have died because of their bickering during this scene. But fine, it doesn't go in that direction. But Penance, with her like four minute being high routine and then uh, Molly getting high with her, I was rolling my eyes hard during all of that. It wasn't a, it wasn't a good look to start this episode. I will agree with you. Um, that it got a little slapsticky and a little silly. So basically, what happens is uh, when Amalia says uh, the careful what and it's opium, uh, Penance walks back. She's high. She's babbling. She's just talking nonsense. Amalia walks over to her. They're babbling a little bit, uh, or Penance is babbling a little bit. Amalia is like talking to her. Uh, Penance then um, notes that uh, Bonfire Annie has walked off. 
As they are walking off, Penance takes another drag of the opium. Amalia stops, walks back, gets a hit in herself. So now they're just uh, now they're just getting high. Um, mm-hmm. And then off they go. And then we get the crappy opening credits. I, I would say this is probably the low point of the episode for me. I had hopes for the scene building up. And I had kind of been building up the, the interaction between, you know, Bonfire Annie and Amalia in my mind. Really didn't get much of a chance of it because we had Penance to distract from what otherwise was, you know, the interesting buildup. So I found this a rather disappointing opening to an episode that goes up from here. It does go up from here. I will agree. Uh, we cut to Amalia getting ready. Um, this is let's going to seem like a very strange, isolated scene. Let's put it in the bucket of tools for our theory crafting. <laughs> we'll um, come back to this, yes. Uh, so basically what she's doing is she's getting ready in the morning. Um, I think they, they do take some pains to show this actress in like, her underwear they just seem to do this over Quite and over a bit. again yes. um she's getting ready in the morning and she's putting makeup on and then she stops looks in the mirror slaps herself hard in the face um seems a little weird abrupt out of place I, again i think it's um they're showing you something we're, we're getting we're, we're gonna get a, a molly a theory here coming it's it's coming folks um go we definitely get, we there's a lot we could potentially draw from this but it gives us a fine tone to interpret hereafter so I liked this scene. It gave it gave me the data points they want me to use for later. Cut to Amalia getting checked out by Horatio, and the sexual tension is so thick, Spencer. <laughs> Woo! Oh my God, these two. Oh Lord. And, and it's not even unresolved sexual tension, as we find out in this scene. Two of them were an item, as it turned out, an illicit oh, yeah. item, if it will. It was resolved at least once. Faux show. Um, Amalia is bemoaning her situation. Bonfire said no. Mary can't sing the song again, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, and by the way, uh, I created Melody. Horatio pushes back on that bit of like um, just self-pity and says, you know you didn't do that. And Amalia says she barely remembers Melody, which that was apparent from their conversation, right? Because when Melody was like, oh, don't you remember me? Like it was very much like the the move you did. Like the move, I don't know if you, have you been to a high school reunion? Uh, No, but I know exactly what you're going for. It was the tone that I had the whole time. It was, yeah. ah, yeah, right. so, anyway, how you been? Yeah, exactly. So, so, are, are you still playing football? No, it's been 10 years? Okay. Oh, see, that's where you go wrong, sir. Never offer a detail. No, don't even, <laughs> no, no, no. They'll do that. At, look, hey, look, here you go. Uh, here, let's do the segment now. Uh, kids, Uncle Lee's got some life advice. If you ever go to a, uh, a reunion, never offer up a detail about the person's past. Just say, yeah, just go. Just go. Otherwise, you'll get in trouble. But anyway, that's a that's exactly the tone that Amalia took with Malady. So it's not surprising here that she indicates that she barely remembers him. Horatio explains that Malady's, uh, Amalia's okay. She didn't rupture her wound on her little excursion. I don't know if you remember from the last episode when Horatio was walking out of the epi- uh, out of the, the room there after he patched up Amalia. And he said, I need you to stay in here for days. And I told you, not going to happen. And yeah. we'll see that at the beginning of episode three. Called that one. I'm going to check checkbox win for me. How long between these two episodes do we feel? Has it been a day? Has it been a full day since the two episodes? Maybe a day. And he's, but you know, it seems like a pretty good doctor because he's like checking yes. her, her wound. He's making sure she didn't rupture anything. Looks like she's okay. Um, Molly asks if Penance is done throwing up. So question here on the throwing up. She got high on opium once and like now she's got a detox? Like why is she throwing up? I picture, I mean, Penance is meant to be a very innocent character. We're getting a lot of that in many ways. I'm guessing she hasn't been, had much exposure to the poppy before. And it clearly didn't agree with her system. She also got apparently a pretty heavy dose a couple times. 
Yeah, you, you don't you don't you don't throw up just from getting high once. But anyway, but, whatever. But, but the can... audience doesn't know that, and throwing up is a classic way of doing comparisons to drunk that the audience does know. <laughs> Look at you, putting me in my place. That's exactly that's exactly right, and I think it does do that. Horatio says she's fine, but she, he me, Horatio, great point here. Says Penance has no business going out on your little excursions. Like you do not need to be taking her with you. Um, Horatio, quote, you're a soldier and penance isn't one. Amalia, she will be. Horatio, that's a terrible fate to wish on a friend. Potential line of the episode. Loved that quote. Great quote. I really like the interaction you two have. Dr. Cousins is a wonderful character for the show. And then they get their sorkin on. They start walking and they talking and the banter and they're walking and talking and bantering. And they walk down uh, out of the door, uh, down some stairs. Um, Horatio, quote, it's not fun watching you throw yourself at danger like you think it's going to propose. Coming here for me to patch you up over and over. Amalia, it could be fun. Horatio, Amalia, we've been through this. There we go. First little first little indication. Uh, the conversation gets broken up by some kids. Don't you hate when that happens? And then Horatio then uh, drops this one. I sit, this, is a, this is a hell of a quote here. Um, they're just, the writers are just giving it to us here. Horatio, I sit across from my wife at dinner and I know something she doesn't know, something that will pull her heart out. And the only comfort I have or I could give is the knowledge that I walked away from it. Amalia, you didn't get very far. Horatio, you think it's easy for me? Amalia, uh, uh, you didn't get very far. Um, And then Horatio walks off and then Amalia says, you think it's easy for me? Horatio says, nothing is easy for Amalia True. She has the weight of the world. Hell of a quote here from Amalia. I'm giving her a 10 out of 10. It's up. It's good, ladies and gentlemen. Here is the quote. I'm sorry I can't be more generous about being your mistake. (laughs) It's some wonderful dialogue between those two. I love the interchange. I love what more we learned about their past and about the reasons for the sexual tension between the two of them. (laughs) That's, That's a funny way to put it. Reasons for the sexual tension? They had sex. Yes, and it's hanging over them in a way that it was an affair. Possibly on both of their parts, too, given her frequent title as the widow. Widow. The widow. Yeah. So that's an interesting dynamic. I also really appreciate Cousins also calling out Amalia a little bit for just being flippant with respect to both her safety and those around her. That's a talk that needs to happen in greater detail more often. I completely agree. He makes very good points there. I just thought, I thought that he was, you know, in the verbal sparring, he was just landing blow after blow after blow at Amalia. It just seemed childish and like aloof and silly Mm -hmm. during it. And she was coming off terrible. But then when she hit him with the, I'm sorry, I can't be more generous about being your mistake. It all came to form for me because it's like, yeah, of course. What do you expect her to do? Like sit there and apologize to you? You, you of boxing, you of boxing terms. Would he have been ahead on points, but she landed a knockout there? I think so. I think so. Uh, it's a TKO, but he was up probably uh, every round because I mean he he was just he. I mean the he starts right off with a great point, right? Which is like, why mm-hmm. the hell are you taking penance out there with you? Yeah, she's not a soldier, and we we all know that it's pretty obvious. Hell, even your comments as we were going through the recap made that clear, where you were like, yeah, she's just sort of like bickering and like she's like kind of childish during it. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, uh, I think we're going to get a lot more of Amalia and Horatio, and I'm up for it. I'm, I like it. Do you think, we, we know that he cheated on his wife. Do you yes. think that she cheated on presumably her now dead husband? I'm going to give you some credit here, Spencer. Are you ready? Mm. 
I had not considered that maybe she cheated when she was still married because of her title as the widow. So shout out to you for that. I just assumed that she had did it when, you know, in the three years since she was touched. Um, and, you know, since she tried to kill herself, like it, like in her current role, like I just assumed like she just left the orphanage one day and went and had sex with Horatio. I'd never considered it. And I could totally see the show going there. It's that possible. She had, she had had that affair in her previous life, right? Like before it all happened. And it's, I think it's possible. And I think, but it's also possible that it in some way could tie in to the first moment we ever saw of her of seemingly jumping into a river to commit suicide. We have those two data points about her past, and we just got another data point. And my nature is to try to connect them all together. We'll see where that goes. I don't know. I think it's a it's a very interesting thought there, and I had not considered it, so shout out to you. Cut to the orphanage, and Mary is playing a song, and the band played on. Mm-hmm. Good song. It's a good, good song. song. Works um, the crowd. You know, it's, it's good to have a repeated refrain like that for a chorus. The actress does a good job here of like going into that gear where it's like, oh, yeah, she actually is an entertainer. Like, mm-hmm. ah, it makes sense because she is, like you say, she's working the room. There's sing-alongs. I do appreciate that Myrtle doesn't try to participate in too much of the sing-along. She just kind of hums. <laughs> good call. Good call. Very self-aware there from Myrtle. <laughs> Uh, but everyone seems to be enjoying it. Amalia walks in and whoop, record scratch. Yeah. Everyone stops. That was very interesting to me, Spencer. What did you think about the fact that like when she walks in, the fun stops? It is a really interesting kind of scene and reaction for everybody. And it doesn't start back up even when she invites them to do so. Her she mere does it presence. Twice. Yeah. Her presence is the anti-fun. It's just she's such a serious, intense character, at least in the view of everybody else. That the moment she walks into a room, the tone changes whether she wishes it to or not, and it can't come back until she leaves. I'm going to beat this show. I've done it the first couple episodes. I'm gonna continue. I will beat this show up a lot. This is an imperfect show. We are not dealing with, like, give it, give it, back up the Emmy truck with this situation, mm-hmm. right? But I will give this show credit when it's due. And I thought this little detail of how they stop when Amalia walks in was very, very interesting and telling because I think Amalia has... What we know of her, she seems to think of herself as their savior. She is out there. She's sacrificing. She's working for the touched to help them, to bring them together. She is like their champion in her mind, I think. And mm. the fact that they don't, they can't even have fun around her, I think should be a bit of a wake up for call, call for Amalia. I don't think it is, but I think it should be. Well, she's in some ways mad, bad, and dangerous to know. And she is self-conscious of that, that she is a dark, twisted violent person and everyone may be picking up on that to a certain degree it all they also may be may picking up the degree that she has just this cloud of depression and self-loathing just constantly hanging over which is always going to put a bit of a damper on everybody else's fun too doesn't strike me as the singing type but I, you know she does have a bit of a leadership position here in this orphanage and you know like the people can't have fun around her so i, th- I think that's that's a good tell good writing and i think it's gonna we're gonna see more of that as the show continues Agreed. um uh amalia can as you mentioned amalia urges them to to keep going but penance walks in who explains that in between vomits the night uh before she had a vision and it's an idea for an amplifier but she doesn't like the branding. She's got branding. I'll give uh, Penance that. She wants to change the name, not an amplifier, to the Brightener. Mary, Mary mm. Brighton. Yeah. Yeah, whatever. Um, anyway, the whole point of this contraption here is that what they want to do is they want to get in a public place 
where they can they can um, uh, they can they can amplify Mary's voice to amplify her song as much as possible, so as many touched people as possible can hear it. Because I think their thought is that when people when the touched hear the song. I guess they'll all get together and good things will happen. I, I don't quite know how this, this story ends, but it does seem, they do seem to have it in their head that they need to hear the song and that the song will bring them together. Right. They're, they're providing speakers to the siren to draw all the sailors to them kind of thing. This seems to be what they're either planning on working this, that if they feel her ability, if they feel the warmth, the happiness, the hope that it instills, they will all be able to flock to a central place by some almost instinctual understanding, or at least just a natural desire to be closer to those around them. It seems almost that Mary's ability has that kind of latent effect on people anyway. Um, so, yeah, it, this seems to be the plan. This was kind of our prediction about where the entire plot of the show would be going longer term, but they are not wasting any time. We're getting this done in episode plot. three. No, the, the plot goes quick. So you're not a huge fan, as as we've documented in the previous two episodes. You are not a huge fan of Mary's turn, or no, sorry, not uh, Penance's turn. I like Mary's turn. Penance's turn frustrates me. Um, how did you feel when she said that she could devise a contraption that could make the voice audible for a mile? I, I'm just looking at this ability, going like, you don't have a real ability. You have an ability that the writers just pull out whenever they need to have something happen. This is what your ability is, is writer's shortcut. Well, and, and I'm starting to get, I'm starting to think that maybe, they, I'm breaking news here, but they might get begin getting a little lazy with the turns across the board, for, like in that same vein, right? Because they're doing the same thing with Horatio, and we, we establish this. He can just fix anything. Mm. And now it seems that like penance can just make anything. And like yeah. you, they, they, they need to put a button on that. They don't need to do that too much because it's just going to get so um, like Mad Libs, just like fill in the blank of what happens next, right? There, there's no rules to the fantasy. World. Yeah, you, you got to show me a scene of Luke struggling to get the lightsaber out of the wall in the, in the, Wampa, in the Wampa Cave. You got to give me something to show that there are limits, that there are abilities nice that are still coming to terms back. with it. But in limits are what help, helps that audience understand abilities to help actually view them as real even when they obviously aren't and we haven't been getting that they just kind of work on a character is injured he can heal them uh, something needs to be invented to make the plot work she can invent it and that's fine it's functional but it's just not particularly satisfying yeah i i mean you and i both love fantasy and you know we are drawn we we even picked this show because it's it was a promise of a new fantasy world that we could wrap our minds around we could live in we could discuss craft theories you got to have parameters you got to have rules and and her just being like yeah i can make this thing where it's just like audible like a mile around and by the way what she brings out looked like looks like a record player at the end of the episode it's just it's just tough all the way around she's also making this like for tomorrow right like, it's this she, evening it's, it's that she evening. How does she even have the parts? She says she, she says all she needs is a little copper wire. Didn't you hear? Can Boom. she literally checkbox writers? Checkbox, give me a little copper wire. See, see what I'm saying? Like it, they got they got to tighten that up. It, it's it's yeah, it's going to be hard hard to to stay in uh, stay in the world and and feel like you're engaged and that you understand the parameters Wait, and the rules. Which is part of the reason I, I feel bad about not particularly liking this character yet because she has some hallmarks that I would like. She's the innocent kind of character Cute. who has a sunny disposition, who's constantly encouraging those people around to you know focus on the angels of their better nature. Not bad on the eyes. Not, not bad on the eyes, too. She's the... I mean, you watched Firefly. She's in many ways representing, like, the Kaylee kind of figure. But everything's being so forced when it nice. comes to her... So forced to her character so far in just terms of 
them almost aggressively wanting me to appreciate her as adorable and just treat her abilities just naturally working, it just didn't come across as particularly authentic yet. And I'm hopeful it will, because the actress seems to be doing a good job, and I have hopes that that, I, that kind of character archetype will stick in the show, because I like it. It just hasn't landed for me yet. Are you ready for the Reddit post that Penance is the actual hero and she's not getting enough credit because fill in the blank? Because yeah. we're getting it. That they're yeah. setting that character up for that, right? Like she's yeah. oh, she doesn't get her due credit. Yeah. Um, <sighs> anyway, they're going to test right this. <laughs> they're going to test this thing that evening, um, and then Penance lays down for a nap because of the opium joke that continues in this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, we cut to Amali's office. Mary comes in, and she's starting to give her an update, saying, "Hey, I think I'm getting close to the song again." And Amalia, I thought was very rude to her. She's like, I don't need an update every time we see each other. It'll come when it comes. Like, yeah, th- terrible management. <laughs> we, we may be getting a bit of a, a further indication why everybody in the, why the, we, yeah. the record scratch and she walks into a room is that this is how you interact with people? Really? It's tough. I mean, like, Mary obviously like wants to talk to Amalia, doesn't have a lot to talk to her about, knows that the one thing that Amalia needs from her is to sing her song. And she's like, hey, here's where I'm at with that. Cuts her off. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear an update. And Mary's been there. I mean, how many updates has Mary provided? We think that she's been there. What two days? Three yeah, max? Maybe a day, really. I mean, I thought I thought they did this thing the day, the next day. So it's like maybe maybe thirty six hours or something. I don't I mean, know. I mean, hell, you give her a week before you even talk to her just to let her rest. She's had a near death experience or three. Yeah, I don't know. I thought it was it was pretty rude. But Mary inquires about Amalia recruiting Bonfire. I think it was a fair fucking point from Mary. She basically says, look, I wish I'd been told. If I turned the corner and she was here, like, I'd been a little freaked out. Amalia says, well, I didn't want to worry. You know, it came in nothing and nothing is what it was. So don't worry about it. Mary then accuses Amalia of keeping secrets. She goes on to say that she's asked around the orphanage, asking what the place is, what they are meant to be doing, and everyone has different answers. This Mary is not dumb. She mm-hmm. is not dumb. Molly asks Mary what she's after, and Mary finally kind of waffles a little bit in the conversation. She finally settles on she wants to know more about Amalia. Amalia obliges and explains. Here's a quote from Amalia. Three years ago, I woke up knowing things that I shouldn't and was declared insane, which for a time I thought I was. So yes, I keep secrets. I also drink when I shouldn't, fight when I needn't, and fuck men whose names I do not learn. I get nervous in crowds. I see things that aren't there. When I meet someone, the first thing I think of is how to kill them. Mary, what is it you know that you shouldn't? You want me to sing so that more people will come here. Maybe I'm struggling because I don't know if they should. Ah, ah, fair. Whoa. Amalia, you know what this is? This is a ringer. Amalia stepped in that verbal ring, did not know what fight she was up against. Uh, Mary just levels her here. It's a very good point, and it's probably... Again, I keep going back to that record scratch scene where Amalia walks in and nobody can have fun around her. It's like... She's not communicate. She's a terrible manager, first off. She's just rude. But she's also not articulating a clear vision for these folks. She's, she's gathering. She's saying, you all need to come here. But she's not told them the ultimate goal. And, and hell, we just had that same problem when we were talking about Penance's goal here. About, like, well, let's get, let's get Mary's song for everyone to bring them all here. And then what? And Mary's basically calling bullshit on that. This is part of the reason I wish that a lot of the events that happened in this episode would be like episode five or episode six. Like yeah. this would be almost a great, you know, mid mid season ender kind of moments that are happening in this episode. Just so we can get a little bit more time to spend with what the hell the orphanage is. We don't really know yet. It's just some people that are hanging out that every now and then get called out for social functions. It's like show me what a Molly actually does day to day when it comes to this place. Show me how this place is run and what people actually, you know, do in terms of 
what it is to live here. I don't really have an idea yet. And it's almost Mary calling that out to a certain degree about, presently we got some people in rooms. What does that mean more than that? Yeah, and I want to go back to this whole like little diatribe that Amalia gives where she's like, well, I'll tell you about myself. Let me be vulnerable. I don't. Th- I think that was just camouflage. That was. Yes, it was. I need to give you something, so I'll just fill the space. But I don't think she was at well, all really genuinely opening up. And it was the kind of opening up which is purposely designed to push somebody away. She opened up revealing a case of borderline personality disorder. She opened up with revealing deep self-hating depression and putting everybody else away. With almost the intention of getting married that, hey, you happy now? How about you walk away? That's not actually yeah. opening up. That's trying yeah. to drive somebody away farther. It's a very good point. I, I just felt like everything Amalia did in that scene was really off-putting. And like, I, she's obviously our protagonist. She's the she's the lead. But this episode's not doing her a lot of favors. I'm not I'm not rooting for her at this point in this episode. Um, anything else on this this uh, exchange? Because it was a pretty important exchange. I think. Well, it was two good, important exchanges between two seemingly key people in Amalia's life. And I like them both. Both because they gave me further perspective into Amalia, but also because they helped build up a little bit more of the world. So, yeah, more of these exchanges between characters. They're great. Yeah, two, two like, mainstays, right? Two main characters mm-hmm. is what we had here. Just a couple, couple people who yeah. were going to be on the cast for a long time to come. I am fully expecting at this point that these are characters that are going to be on the headers, that are going to be on the banners for the next, you know, two, three seasons if we go that far. Obviously. And now it's time to up the nudity bars. So we cut to Hugo. Oh. And he is just—he uh, is just, uh, <laughs> he is just with some woman. Um, and I guess right as they're about to, right to, about to hit the ceiling there, he asked her to do it, and she shouts out the time. So... Uh, Apparently, Hugo thought she admitted a light. So here, this is a very disjointed sequence. Mm-hmm. Here's what I think they want us to understand. Okay. Is that from the exchange for with uh, that Augustus had with Hugo in the previous episode, Hugo is now starting to hire women who have turns to perform at the Ferryman's Club. Because I guess he thinks like sex with a little side of special powers is probably going to get a higher price tag and so here he was trying out someone he thought had a turn that where she could i guess when she climaxes admit a blue light or purple light or something it's like a prostitute that can juggle it's a double weapon but instead what this woman has is the innate ability to tell the time all the time which by the way look I, I might pick that turn. A lot of these turns seem like a real pain in the ass. This one, this one would not hinder hinder your dude, life at all. Dude, and you, would be, you would know the time all the time. Look, look, hey, look. Some of these are a real problem. Like look, look at Primrose or Lucy. Some of these turns are not great. This one at least is benign and a little helpful occasionally. That's but you, li- but you like watches. Wouldn't this undermine your desire to wear a watch? Do you just constantly inherently know what Greenwich mean? Actually, it could be frustrating if you only know what Greenwich Mean Time is. Like, you know what time it is in London, but that's it. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Either way, it's not the turn that Hugo won. Then in comes Augustus, and he is suitably uncomfortable in this club because he is now seemingly sober. Augustus mm-hmm. wants to talk to Hugo about something, but obviously gets distracted. He asks if Hugo's auditions all the girls, and he says, I audition all the girls and the boys. Look out. Woo! HBO. Getting hot in here. Augustus says he doesn't think he can be part of this. He's having a predictable bit of a crisis of confidence with the whole I'm going to own a sex club thing. Yeah. Um, A bit of of post-coital second thoughts. Yeah. And Hugo says, well, you already signed the papers. 
Um, although apparently they uh, they aren't submitted, right? They're not filed. He just signed them. And I, I think what, what? The, the papers are, I'm not, I, me, no lawyer. Uh, but I will say, I think what the papers are is he Hugo is giving over formal ownership of the club to Augustus so that the name of the, like the owner of the business, the name on the, the title and all of that stuff will be Bidlow. Right. For, for reputable reasons. So that he can be the clean face of this corporation rather than, you know, Hugo's likely much more sullied reputation. Now, we also find out that Augustus signed these papers at 4 a.m. Again, um, this was still this day's 4 a.m. or maybe yesterday's 4 a.m., right? Yeah, it was like, I don't know what, it's very close afterwards, and it was 4 a.m. of that same day. So to, to, to retract, we talked about what a day that was for Augustus. It continued at least until 4 a.m., at which point he, like, bought a sex club. So, yeah, talk about a day. That's a bender right there. Unbelievable. Shout out to you, Augustus. I haven't had that kind of bender before in a long damn time. Never had a sex club bender. That that, that one's a new one on me. But, yeah, Augustus is definitely having the, uh, (laughs) the sobering moment in a lot of ways. Though it's interesting to see Hugo just straight up lie to him on the subject of the, the papers actually being filed. Yeah, he did. He just said, yeah, they were filed. And then he tells the lady as he's walking out, like, get those fucking papers filed immediately. Um, which, which seemed imminently audible. I don't know what yeah. Augustus is doing. Um, it's like, yeah, it's, I don't know. Augustus almost like flinched like he overheard him. They didn't even say it anyway. Yeah, like, it that's, is, not, that's yeah. not even a stage whisper. You just said that in front of another person. What do we what do we make of this like discrepancy on the filing of the papers? Is this going to be like the papers don't ever get filed and Augustus wheels his way out of this thing? Is that is that what uh, we're we're the, heading toward? They're leaving it open. Yeah. They're they're, yeah. they're they're leaving this plot in a direction that Augustus can get out of it for whatever reasons that they wish going forward. Anyway, we're back to walking and talking and Hugo walks over to All right, so mm-hmm. <laughs> Please go, on. Is, go uh, on. All right, so um this is a sex club, right? Yes. Now, I've never in my, I've never thought about. It's going to shock a lot of people. I've never thought about the mechanics of a sex club. Like, how do you actually <laughs> set one up? But I did have the thought as I watched this scene that the semi-public shower for the occasional wash-off probably not a bad idea. So I'm just going to give Hugo a little bit of credit there for the design of the of the building of the interior. Sh- shower was a great call. Great call. Gotta have those. Not bad. Not bad. Little, little like, and it seemed very accessible. Just walk right over the shower. Boom. You're, you're, you're good to go. I, um, I, enjoy, I enjoyed the decided focus in the scene about what he's actually washing off. Yeah. HBO hides, you know. HBO hides nothing. I was gonna, I was gonna walk over that. But yeah, he was, he was, um, uh, yeah, he had a purpose to that shower. Mm. Um, during this conversation, Hugo, um, says he can't find out, uh, or no, sorry. Uh, Augustus says he's worried that Lavinia might find out. And Hugo says, well, she can't because like the papers are sealed or something. He gives some like very flippant response. So first off, not taking legal advice from Hugo. Second, does anyone <laughs> ever believe that Lavinia is not going to find this out? Like obviously like, not. like 10 seconds into episode four. Augustus knows this too, or at least he should. Lavinia is able to pull a lot of strings. Just the other day, she called. She called the chief of police to get a judge in trouble. She can get. This, <laughs> it's a good point. <laughs> she can get sealed public records on her whim. Yeah, especially she probably will just be like auto notified of them because her last name is in it. Like she'll probably yeah. just find this. She probably doesn't have to do anything. Somebody's just gonna tell her this stuff. 
Um, Hugo says he needs the help um, and he'll let Augustus out of this at some point. So it was an interesting phrasing from Hugo here because he seemed to tip his hand that he was just really like, like he, he had trapped Augustus in this. And I'll let you out of it here at some point. But you know what? I just need some help. This is a little much for me. This whole like running a sex club thing. Can't be the sole proprietor. I got other things going on. Why don't you just hang out here? Be the boss for a little while. You'll enjoy it. Just tell people no. We're going to get another uh, Hugo scene before this episode is done. But at this point, like, at this point, you were saying last episode that you were starting to feel sympathetic for, you know, Hugo. To start to see him as more rounded character. Did this scene undermine that a little bit in your eyes? Oh, Hugo, going back to basics here. True to back yeah. to form. I mean, this is this is the Hugo that I knew when he uh, he couldn't explain what a turn was and he was drinking wine at 9 a.m. inexplicably. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, th- this is he is he is in the uh, he is in the pole position for booby prizes this episode after this <laughs> for we, we, sure. We will get another scene with him. We'll see if that improves things. Cut to Gilbert Masson's house, which from now on I'm going to refer to as Masson Abbey. Um, because <laughs> well it looks said. exactly like Downton Abbey. And oh boy, it oh is. boy, is it a house. I mean, my God, he lives oh, in a big one. The Masson um, Mansion. Oh, yeah. He's leaving and he notices some people installing something on his property. Apparently it's phone lines. Yeah. Um, quote here from Masson, the degradation of progress. We built homes to keep people out and then built machines to let them all in. So um, I think that like couldn't possibly write a more old man yelling at the skyline here for Masson, but it's on brand, right? I mean, that's what he is. He is, he has established himself pretty early on as like, I'm not a big fan of this whole progress stuff and he's just going to fight it. Like for as many episodes as we get of this series. As a person that still doesn't have a Twitter account that has an Instagram in theory only and has not checked Facebook in probably eight months, Lord Masson, I think I'm a little bit there with you in terms of that thought right now. Yeah, I mentioned that. Like, if you want to find us on social, um, you can find me. At, you can find me at, at Mangum Talks. Follow me on Twitter, um, mm-hmm. at Mangum Talks on Instagram. I, I create both the accounts. I follow both the accounts. If you want to get to get with Spencer on social, uh, you can't. So there's that. Um, he's our, he's our Lord Masson here on the Neversmore podcast. And we are both so much happier for that state of affairs. Uh, he's complaining about the telephone and the housekeeper is trying to sell him. All, this is just so clear what happened here, right? He likes the housekeeper a little bit and she's like pushing for the telephone. And she's saying like, look, it's going to help me with the ordering. It's going to help with some stuff. And like any good housekeeper who deals with a curmudgeon owner um, or a curmudgeon <laughs> proprietor of the property or business, um, she steps a little too far and she says, well, what if you have some unexpected company? You know, the under Butler heard, um, someone says the under, someone heard the under Butler talking about, uh, the fact that you met a widow, um, out when you, when you were out about or something like that. So some, some phrase wink, like that. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Obviously is, is Amalia. It's miss, it's miss, um, Lavinia. it's Amalia. Was it, is, is it Amalia? Is it Amalia or Lavinia? No, he, he met a widow when he was out. Oh, you're right, 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 right. And it is Amalia. And Masson says, well, you're going to fire him, right? Like, it is so fast. I loved Ooh. how abrupt that was. And I loved that there was just no second. There was no, like, you know, delay in understanding from her. She didn't <laughs> seem surprised at all. But it's like, well, you, you damn it. Like, that lady got the underbutler fired. It's almost like she felt a duty to tell him that the underbutler. Under, I'm going to work this in a way that serves what I want you to do. But at the same time, I'm obliged as your, you know, senior servant to give you this information. She was setting up that man for execution. 
Yeah, it happened. Um, he says uh, she needs to give up hope that he'll find somebody else. The house is all the company he needs. Masson leaves. And as he, as he leaves, we get the pan out to the graveyard. And we see the headstones yeah. of Masson's wife and his daughter. I don't know if you saw the date on the I daughter. Uh, 1896. So it was the same time as the alien spaceship who came down and dropped the magic fairy dust, making everybody powerful. Um, so when the event happened, it, it, it we, we saw it in the flashback, Masson run to his daughter who seemed to fall down. We posited at the time that the daughter might have died. It looks like that is, in fact, what we saw. That appears to be the information that we're getting. And, yeah, wife had also died a couple years earlier, too. Was it 1887, I think I wrote down? So Yeah, so he's had a, he's had a rough go of it. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's just alone there in Masson Abbey. Um, and it looks like he doesn't <laughs> want anybody else. I mean, he's making it clear. Like, even... Even his servants discussing the idea that he might like someone else gets them fired. So he is, he is not on the dating market. That man has not filled out his profile on Match.com. Well, you know, as with many people that live alone, at least he's got his dogs. A lot of swipe left. A lot of swipe left <laughs> from Lord Masson. Uh, we cut to the Beggar King. Here's my thoughts on the Beggar King. Ready for it? Yeah. yeah Terrible yeah. name. Uh, yeah. Uh, please work on so your So sick of the name. Talk, talk with penance. Get her to help with the branding. It'll help you. Lazy-ass name from the writers here. Lazy-ass storyline and lazy writing. But I will say this. The actor who plays the Beggar King? Nick Frost is great. Yes. I, I don't know who... You You seem to know this guy because you throw out his name. But like, I don't know who he is. All I know is that I need him like I need him doing audiobooks because everything he says is interesting to me. Tell me. Have you seen Shaun of the Dead? No. Hot Fuzz. I know of these films. I know that they, there's a particular group of guys that make those types of films. I haven't seen them. They're all good films. We'll need to watch them someday. He's a wonderful actor. He's done a lot of good things. Okay. He's a surprisingly, right. well, big, he's a surprisingly big billing to get on this show. Oh, okay. All right. So this is like a known guy and I'm like, I'm oh, like, yeah. Throw, and, okay. And I'm over here like, oh, well, let me, let me hit you with the insightful so glad point that this guy's good. <laughs> I'm so I'm legitimately glad that you're getting to see him for the first time. This guy's a wonderful actor in everything that he's in. He, he has a very interesting, most of the accents on this show are crap. His accent is very interesting. I find him to be compelling. He, he acts well. He sells what I think is a weak storyline very, very well. And this scene, which is trite and um, is like almost like, uh, like, um, like it, it's predictable. It's like, um, what, am I, what word am I looking for here? So we see this all the time. Archetypal. It's like, yeah. a, it's sort of something that we see constantly. It's a predictable thing. It's not a new storyline. It's something that we could easily get bored with, but I feel like his acting carries this. What I'm trying to say, long way, but that's what I got. It's a way I would, a way I'd almost express it is it's using the old meaning of the phrase vulgar. It's just so common. It's so it's so it's so going by the numbers in a way that's almost disappointing. It's as we say said when we first met him. They want to show that he's an evil bad dude, and so they just check the boxes for evil bad dude. Yeah, dude, I'm with you. And you know what? This is like. Okay, vul- vulgar. Like, we're going to go with vulgar. It's so vulgar. I'm not even going to do like the beat for beat recap. Here, I'm going to do like a, a much faster recap on this scene because I think we don't need to hear it line for line. Um, basically what happens is the Beggar King is dressing down his men because they ran from Bonfire Annie. And what we get from his dressing down is that he seems more concerned with his brand, his name mm-hmm. in the streets. My name is my name, Marlo. Hoping you do that line, yes. It's a it's a Marlowe situation. My name is my name. He's more concerned with his branding than what actually occurred. 
And he's got basically two guys here who he he's blaming for running away and making him look bad. I guess in the eyes of the audience that was watching this whole scene unfold, one and he he lifts up the the, the young guy's shirt, and mm. what we see is that he has a fresh brand. And so here's here's the reveal: is that the Beggar King, when you work for him, you get branded. And his brand is new, so the Beggar King gives him a little bit of grace and says, "You know what, dude? You're new. Sorry about that. You though." You've been here a long time. That guy tries to sputter some sort of um, some sort of excuse. Beggar King does not go for it and cuts his brand off of him, which I guess is what happens when you get fired from this guy. Yeah, and he does it with a straight razor, too, which he pulls that off really damn easy for removing a hell of a chunk of a person's skin. It also, almost like evenly cuts it off, too, so it's just an inch top flap. I guess he's done it before because he pulls it off I was, a lot I was personally I glad he was able to do it quick and not like realistic because I didn't want to see the gnawing. But like, yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, it, it's a, it's whatever. But uh, uh, here's, but here's another thing that I think we should note about the scene is that he ends it with, so what the fuck is Miss Chu up to now? So Amalia, very much on the Baker King's radar. Yeah. One thing I also liked about the scene is he yelled out something at them that I often yell out in, you know, superhero kind of pictures is that, you know, she had these abilities and she came at you and what could you do? What did you have? You had guns! You could have shot her! Why yeah. didn't you? She doesn't have any protection. Bulletproof vests don't exist yet. Shoot her! Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, but I mean, you know... She ran on fear. Obviously they can't, because, I mean, it's Bonfire, Bonfire Annie and we got to get her in later episodes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that's that scene. Cut to the police station. Frank Mundy gets an envelope and no one knows who left it. It's an address and at the bottom it says now. So Frank takes off. And we get to see what we will later find out is Hugo Swan's family crest on the top of the letter. Yeah. Cut to Masson Abbey and someone who is there to install the telephone wires is walking around. Rudely takes a teacup or a, a cupcake. Um, he, did you see that? It was like, like a he, little little kind of biscuit of some kind. He, he just starts smearing jam on it. He starts taking his food. That was very rude. Muttering to himself, and apparently they told him to try the attic, which he doesn't want to do because he's in a bad mood. And he wants to go, I guess, down to the basement. So he goes down to the basement. And immediately we're getting weird vibes. This is what I was talking about with this show. When he goes down to the basement, he's not supposed to be there. There's supposed to be something dangerous there. What does this show do? It gives us the creepy music. <laughs> yep. Yep. Okay, so we know what's going on. Um... And he's walking toward a door. It looks like a like a like a, kind of like a cage type thing, like a cage type door or a bars or something. And the housekeeper drops in, boom, and tells him not to mess with the dogs. Quote: They've gone rabid. Sidebar: That's a problem. What do you just get? Your dogs went rabid, and you're just keeping them. Like, yeah. What is going on with these dogs? That explanation holds zero water. That, that doesn't that, make any sense. They've gone what? They they've gone rabid. Also, what? it's not like you also can just stay rabid forever either. Rabies kills you. It's a lethal condition. You'll go nuts and insane and horrible pain before then, but then you die. So anybody that knows anything, if this guy has a head on his shoulders, that explanation is not going to hold him, just hold even for him leaving the room kind of thing. I had Bolton Hound vibes here, like Masson yeah. hasn't fed the dogs in a while, sort, uh, sort of thing. That's what I was. That's what I was feeling. So, what's actually in here? It's not dogs. It's obviously not dogs. What no, do we think? I don't know what's in there. I think it's maybe it's. Um, does he have chained up um, 
touched people down there? That, I mean, that seems to be my bet. Let me offer a possibility. Oh, do theory we, time. Should I save it for the end or should we do something? No, no, no. Go ahead. Theory time. Theory time. How, do, how much do we know his daughter's actually in the ground? Whoa. Whoa. Spencer, are you positing that maybe his daughter did not die, but she is touched and he has got her locked up down there? That her ability did not go clean, that it's been disastrous in some way upon her, or in some way that he could not emotionally accept, and she's chained up underneath the house, you know, Goonies style. Whoa, man. What a big one there. I like that theory, Spencer. I think that might... That that makes a lot of sense, because they, they couldn't wait to show you the gravestone... And they're obvious. It's obviously not dogs. Uh, you didn't hear any barking, and they're supposed to be rabid dogs. And even if they were rabid dogs, you would kill them. All of that is wrong. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't have a better answer for you. So right now, I'm going to go with that theory. It, it's got to be something touched related. So that would be the, the funnest twist. So sure, maybe that one for now. Cut to Penance and Myrtle walking through town, and they see the same flyer that Cassini saw in the last episode. It's the one with Amalia's face. And it has an address on it, and I think it's the same address to where Cassini went, where she was taken. Credit to the credit to the show, and thank you for the show for explaining this twice. I did not put two and two together in the last episode that the flyer was not providing correct information. I thought she just got lost. I didn't realize the flyer was actually part of the trap. Now yeah. I'm with you, show. Thank you for thank you for taking the extra time. Yep. It did. Um, and uh, obviously, Penance and Myrtle are pretty upset about this because they know, I mean, obviously, they have their own advertising push. Um, they're doing radio spots and stuff for the, the are orphanage. They? Yeah, are of course. They? They're out They're out there. They're trying to get all the, I mean, hell, they're, they're going to broadcast Mary's song in an attempt to get people there. I mean, they're obviously, they have some push to try to get the touched to the actual orphanage. And it's working. I mean, they're bringing people in. Um, and now they just got this like this bad actor out there just circulating pictures of Amalia's face with a with a weird address on it. So they don't like that at all. Yeah, clearly this indicates that there was a flaw in their marketing. Flyers were the way to go, and they just did not invest enough in flyer flyers and printing. This is really on them, I feel. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, you could do. I mean, just plug here podcast advertising. I think it goes a long Absolutely. way. You're going to touch a lot of listeners, so you know, always always do that. Um, <laughs> What would a what would a podcast in eighteen ninety nine be? Is it just two old guys at a coffee shop talking loudly? I'll tell you it's what it would be. I'll tell you what it would be. It'd be two old guys at a, a coffee shop talking loudly, and then penance washing them and going, "Ooh, I've got an idea!" And then bam, we got podcast. <laughs> see how see how they can do that. That's how you can write anything in this show. Just ooh, you know, like penance oh, can just be like at a at a soccer match and be like, "Oh, I think everyone needs to watch this," and bang, television. <laughs> Really, Pennant just needs to be out there in the world enough so that she can just get in the ideas to make the modern world happen. We're going to get the internet by episode six. It's, Mark my words. Man, it's going to be fast. Uh, cut to Horatio, who is walking out on the street, and the colonel comes up to him and says, I told you I'd get you a ride. And now I got to pause for a second because I just want to posit this, Spencer. This mm -hmm. might be a little bit of a controversial point. The colonel has the most powerful turn of anybody. Absolutely. He has the most power. He can just, are you kidding me? It's that easy for him? If he can do that, what we just saw, and we, we already know that he was like staying at like the presidential suite because he was telling people yeah. he was like the, like the Duke of something. If he can do that, I don't know why he's not the head of the group. Why is Malady the head of the group and he's not? Uh, lack of ambition. That's the only explanation. Maybe he doesn't Skank. want to take a punch. I mean, obviously the, the job description for, for leader of Malady's group is you got to be able to take a punch. 
I mean, this guy is straight up, you know, Kilgrave from, you know, he can, if he can control how people, you know, think or perceive reality, he can control anybody. I mean, what, what's stopping him from just telling every, every one of the other touched what he wants them to do and then they do it. Yeah. And it like on the surface seemed to me the turn that I would want. I was like, man, I'd really, but then I was like, no, maybe I don't. Cause life would get boring quick. If you were the Colonel, if everyone just believed everything yeah. you said, like right away, like, man, Anyway, it worked. Horatio goes, oh, yeah, my ride. And he walks up to this carriage, um, gets in. And as he's getting in, uh, the colonel tells him there's nothing in there to be scared of, which the patient takes issue with. And it is malady. It's the patient. You who love audio cues, did you notice the little audio cue whenever the colonel uses his ability? No. There is a little tinkling kind of noise whenever he uses his ability to give the audience a clue when he's actually speaking in that manner. Because he can speak normally. It's not something that you just, you know, uh, um, it's just a natural, constant, what? constant There's form. a tinkle? There is I a didn't little, catch it? There is a little kind of audio cue that turns on. Go back and listen. The, whenever Whenever he uses his abilities. When he's speaking normally, it's not there. But when he's directing cousins about, this is the carriage I got for you, don't you remember? Or there's a patient in there and you're not going to be afraid. There is a little lilting kind of noise whenever they, whenever they do that to indicate the ability has been turned on. If that is true, you are you are just beating the hell out of me this episode. You've got theories. You're catching stuff like that. Good God knows. I got to get on my game, Spencer. I'm going to go back and watch that. I did not know that that was a little tell that they were giving us. It, it, it's, it's a useful little cue for the audience just to know because the guy talks a lot. He talks to, he talks to several people. It's not always on when he's using his ability. Another thing I'd like to point out is the guy who plays the colonel. I mm-hmm. would be interested to know, is is he really that fat? Or is that a fat suit? My I, qu- I Here's why I ask. Looks a little light on his feet. Man is nimble. Man is nimble. That's a good call. The Andy Ruiz situation. Like, he's kind of like <laughs> overweight, but he's like very quick. Like, he is just like floating about in these scenes. I can't, I'd be interested to know if he's actually that size. I, um... I'm so anyway, Googling Horatio, the actor in his weight. One second. Go ahead. Yeah, you're going to find out for me. This is on the case. We got a ratio. He gets into the carriage and it is Malady. And it seems like the bullet from Amelia actually did something. Um, so I got to. Here's the thing. So we were positing that maybe like part of Malady's turn is that she's like somehow because it didn't look like the bullet wound did anything to her. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden, yes, it's a real bullet wound that she needs immediate medical attention for. And like just a little like like isopropyl alcohol, like on a pad is so painful for her. She like can't stops mid sentence. So she clearly feels pain. So I guess what we've got here, Spencer, is that when the fight scenes happen, you're just supposed to suspend belief a little bit. I think that's what's going on. I don't because know I don't think it's is. really tied to Amalia or Malady's actual turns or, or how they seem to feel pain in other scenes. I think it's just when they're fighting, we're just supposed to expect that they're going to fight and it's okay. We have absolutely zero understanding of Malady's turn yet. We have no way of knowing she even has a turn other than that her eyes glow every now and then. Yeah. We don't get, we don't have, we don't have a firm boundary whatsoever as to how she works. It appears, if there's any logic assigned to this at all, she has some degree of enhanced damage resistance because otherwise that thing shattered, that thing utterly pierced a lung and there should be a horrendous interior inter- internal bleeding and all kinds of other jazz. Or, as you're saying, just write it off. It's a fight scene. See, I think that's what we're heading toward. I think that I we were... Not. I know. I, I know, man. That's why I bring it up because I think that we were like thinking, 
it's it's all going to play into like a turn and there's all going to be these rules i don't think there's any rules i think that like when malady's fighting is she's just fighting and like she can take a punch and it's okay like i think that's what we got and answer your question the actor who plays the colonel is mark benton i've seen him in several things before he's a good actor he weighs according to google 192 pounds so it looks like they're bulking him up a little bit okay they're putting him in a fat suit that would explain why he's so light on his feet because he is just dancing and i did not see he did not seem to be carrying that weight like somebody who actually weighs weighs that amount. So uh, anyway, uh, that's something I caught there. Horatio asks her um, if he heals her. How does he know she won't kill him to get to Amalia? Malady outfoxing Horatio. My guy Horatio. Just a weak moment here. Because even asking that question tips off Malady that there's some relationship between the two of them. And, and Malady points that out. She goes, wow, if you're even concerned about that, there must be something going on with you two. Anyway, There's they no- dropped that. Go ahead. Does Malady seem remarkably more sane here than she did the, fir- the first couple times we met her? Um, I mean, yeah, and I think that I think that what we've got here is that you know she she she's just she's showing it's like she's she's a showy sort of villain, right? Yeah, it, you know, it's like when you get the Joker one on one, you know, I mean, you can you can talk to him, but when he when he's got a crowd, I mean, he's doing the the crazy yeah. talk. That that's kind of what I was getting out of it because she's never appeared as insane as the first time we met her when she went on her long rant in the opera house. Every other time since then, particularly when she, you know, she's one on one, she's pretty lucid and in control, even if she's a bit weird. Yeah, I I don't know. I think that I think that she's a lot of that whole like crazy maniacal laughing and weird yeah. talking that she's doing is a lot of like, hey, I'm a villain. Look at me. <laughs> yeah. They drop that. They move on to the wound. Malady shows him the wound. Uh, another boob scene. Whoop, whoop. Up the up the nudity bars. And Horatio says he's got to take the bullet out first. He warns her it's going to hurt. Uh, she says she throws that off as if it's nothing. He slaps on a little, I guess, like alcohol, like solution onto her. And it seems to really hurt her, which is just fascinating because last episode we saw uh, Amalia just pummel her face. And it was like yeah. nothing. No problem. She- she got shot in the chest. Let's remember this. But apparently a little bit of alcohol is enough to just send her almost out of her seat. And I don't, I, I at this point, I don't think there's a way to, to explain that off. I think it's just inconsistency. And I think we're just going to have to eat it. Um, so now. Um, Unless, again, her special ability is pain resistance. If that's what it is, we're getting you know, James Bond villain, but it's at least something. But we well, don't why know didn't yet. she have pain resistance to the alcohol? She didn't turn it on until when it went on, her eyes suddenly then lit up, and that was the pain resistance turning. I don't know, dude. I'm trying. Okay, yeah, maybe maybe when she, she has the eye glow, maybe it's like she's Hulk. Maybe she's Hulk. Okay, she's Hulk. Okay. Sure. All right. Malady equals Hulk. All right. Glad we covered that. Uh, anything else on this? Uh, this we this scene gets like sort of broken up, but this first part of this this interaction here with Horatio and Malady, anything you want to cover? No, I think you hit the main details. I mean, it's interesting to see the two of them apparently have a bit of a history. Cause, I mean, Malady even straight up implies that she has prior knowledge of him. She seemed to like she had a, a memory of a black doctor that she thought was fake or something like that, right? Yeah, it, but it's so it's unclear how much of that's bullshit coming out of her mouth, right? It's, it, I mean, it seems like the doctor has a vague knowledge of her, but we don't know whether that's just popular press or through Amalia or whether... Yeah, that's the thing. They've established her of being so famous. Yeah, exactly. That you can't you can't rely on that. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I just thought... It, what do you think about the move here for Horatio to actually heal her? I mean, is this like... this? Yeah, there we go. I, that's what I thought they were going for. It's like he yeah. just can't help himself, but it's like he probably shouldn't, right? Well, I mean, here's his options here. 
If he says no, she kills him. You think so? Yeah, probably. At least he's as reasonable fear that she might. Apparently, she's been killing doctors in the past that have been treating her. He even calls her out on that to a certain degree. Though she says that she gave to them what they gave to her, which is like probably her treating doctors at the hospital kind of thing. Um, are they insane? I think it was. I think it was her psychiatrist that yeah. she was killing. Yeah. So it is at least a serious concern that she'll kill him. He has his Hippocratic oath. He's got to treat people. Period. And the longer he accommodates her, the longer he can stay alive or get information that may pre- may prove later useful. So I don't, I don't think he has a reasonable choice here, unless he's really wanting to risk death, and that just seems unnecessarily risky. Well, it will be interesting to see. Does he does he go back and tell Amalia that he he met with Matt? Because it you know we don't get that in this this episode. Does he go we back do and actually tell her? And so maybe we'll see that in episode four. Maybe we won't. I don't know. That's true. Um, he's not he, he's not at the park later. He's no. not. He doesn't show up at the house after the park either. He's he couldn't. Kinda... He couldn't be at the park, Spencer, because we have to actually kill the character of Mary. And if he's <laughs> if he's oh, at the God. park, then he would just fix her. Oh, okay, God, I think we're done with that scene. Why we can cut there. to yeah. the scene. I'm I am so excited to talk to you about Spencer. Frank Mundy showing up at the bar now. We have talked. We talked last episode. All right. Yeah, I feel like this show. The plot is moving so fast. We'll say something. One episode, and then it gets completely destroyed the next week. So like last episode, we were like, well, Frank has this old reputation of being a heavy drinker, and we haven't seen him drink. I don't know. Homeboy shows up at the bar. <laughs> My man Frank Mundy shows up at the bar. He has mm-hmm. a he has a, a, a drink, an initial drink, and yep. then he, I think he looks at a note, and by the time it takes him to read the note, it looks like he's had three. Like, it happens so fast that he has his third beer. <laughs> He has his third, and he orders, like, two more before he's done, kind of thing. It's like, it. he doesn't even know he's drinking. He's sat down, and it's just flowing. Now, I've drank in my day. I've, I've had some drinks in my day. And I can tell you that Frank starts something here that's a problem, which is you start with the beer, and then you start the intermittent whiskey shot. That's mm-hmm. always trouble. Just uh, This is another little segment here, Uncle Lee out to the kids. If you're going to start day <laughs> drinking... Um, with beer stick to beer don't intermit don't do the intermittent whiskey shot and that's what he does but anyway we'll get back to the recap here frank sits down he started to drink he gets a note that says and i had to pause it to get the the exact wording of the note but the note says this is what it feels like when you waste my time hs and after he reads it he mutters to himself oh hugo swan so we know hs is hugo swan yeah which we we had a hint of with the uh the Family Crest logo. This confirms it, but the Family Crest logo, looking at it, is an S with an H surrounding it with what looks like a little crown on top. So, Hugo's one. The show does not want you to have to think too hard. They want no. you to understand. So, it, they, he, Hugo Swap. And uh, in a flash, Frank, uh, one beer to his third, as I talked about, he takes a, <laughs> he does take a drink of a beer that is half of the pint. He takes a half he, a pint swig. He houses it, yeah. That's, yeah, that's, 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 a, a, that's a lot of dark to consume real fast. That's a Spencer. That's a Spencer swig right there. That, that's, <laughs> ladies and that's a big one. And then we see a young guy motion at Frank. And interesting enough, Frank seems to know the kid is motioning to him. Frank follows him into a back room, not before taking that little side sidecar whiskey shot, which is not a great idea, into the back room. Hugo says, um, and we see Hugo. Hugo's sitting at a table and he says to Frank, sometimes uh, I think you want to get caught. I'm not yeah. quite sure what that line meant question yeah when frank was staring at this young man yeah how much did you see the two of them well at least least the young guy making bedroom eyes at frank so now that i've 
had the benefit of having watched the episode. Um, I can tell you that I think what they were going for there there is that Frank thought he was going to go, you know, have a situation in the bathroom with this kid. And the kid was just there to lure him for a conversation with Hugo. And hence Hugo's line of, sometimes I think you want to be caught. Yeah. He got so obviously lured into the back room by a young guy that how much you're really hiding this, dude. Yeah, Frank is in... Actor does a good job of portraying drunk Frank. He is mumbling here. Um, he asks, uh, basically asks Hugo what he spends his time doing. Hugo fires back that, um, you know, you've given me nothing about Amalia True or the orphanage. He says, mm-hmm. quote, do you know what it costs to arrange that raid? Okay, here's a reveal. The I was wrong. Hand up. I thought it was Lord Masson who had the, had the you know, devised the raid on the orphanage. It was not. It was Hugo Swain. Yeah. And we figure out that the, it looks like the raid was to get intel on the people there so he could recruit talent to the Ferryman's Club. Yeah, we completely read this one wrong. If, at some point, Lord Masson's going to need to do something in this plot because we've kept on assuming he's been a lot more involved than he actually has been. Yeah, Instead, in reality, what he does is he just sits at gentlemen's clubs and just sort of goes, I don't like the events of the day. There are unions. It's... It's interesting to see this was essentially a rival. This was this was this was essentially a rival recruiter disturbing things, getting getting opposition research yeah. to then recruit away their employees. So yeah, rival that's what company at work. Yeah, he was basically using Frank to to go try to figure out if there were like you know people there who could work as talent in the Ferryman's Club and to try to recruit them. And apparently the Ray he didn't get a lot of intel, so Hugo's not pleased about it. Hugo does make the remark about he he asked about Mary. He explains that. Um, Frank explains that Mary's turn is a song that only the touch can hear. Hugo seems to think here in the conversation is a little freewheeling, which is what you get when you're dealing with somebody who's kind of a little drunk. But Hugo does seem to indicate here that he thinks that Amalia's interest in Mary runs deeper than just the fact that she has this song that the touch can hear. And he notably doesn't trust her about it. Yes. He notably assumes that there is something either self-centered or malevolent or in some way not having Mary's best interests at part that's at play here from Amalia. And that's interesting. It almost factors into what we said before about everyone who spends a little bit of time on Amalia just assumes that she's a bad dude, that you don't really Doesn't want to trust her. her or be around her. Yeah, she would, yeah, bat, really low um, really low favorability here if she was ever going to run for office. It <laughs> seems like every room she walks into, people distrust her more when she leaves. Mm-hmm. Um, Hugo then... Points out that Mary left Frank on his wedding day, but suggests that she did him a favor because now no one will ever question why he doesn't get married again. So here is the reveal that uh, Frank, um, I don't think this show, I think if you start putting labels on people sexually, I think you're going to get in trouble with this show. This seems to be a very spectrum show. Mm-hmm. Um, where people are kind of on a spectrum somewhere. So I'm not going to like call him like gay or straight or whatever, but it is clear that he enjoys his time um, with men. And he has yes. clearly enjoyed some time or had some time with Hugo at some point. And there is some suggestion that his preferences may lie there. As said, spectrum, who knows? Also, assigning labels in the late 1800s, probably not the most meaningful anyway. This is the early period of when the labels were first being developed. So they may not even perfectly apply to individuals. That's um, true, but I also think the show is going for that every, everybody's kind of a little bit on both sides. Because, I mean, think about how many about. people now... I mean, you're starting to rat. I mean, because, look, we didn't want to ship Amalia and Penance, but they are a little handsy. Um, 
you've got you've got Hugo now. You've got Frank. I think you're just gonna you're just gonna get more and more of these people that are kind of playing both sides well, of the fence. And it seems it, you can interpret it as the sh- uh, this is a setting where everybody is a little bit on the spectrum, or you can interpret it as again the people that have been selected for these turns, or at least the people we want to focus on. And this theory is already falling apart because two of the ones you just mentioned don't have turns, but. We're focusing on those who are at the margins of society, those that don't necessarily fit into what is the established quo. So those are the kind of people the show wants to focus on anyway. So I guess it would make sense to see those who would be, particularly during this period, the very much outsiders to the norm. And when Hugo brings this up, Monday, I was drunk! You know, Monday's angry here. Um, Monday hooked up with Hugo, and Hugo is now... Here's what I take from this. Hugo is holding it over his head. To make sure that Mundy helps him with the talent. So some of this recruiting that he's doing, the sex trafficking, if you will, that we identified that Frank Mundy is involved in, I believe some of that is being uh, spurred and motivated by the fact that Hugo has this thing over Mundy. Mundy clearly shows a lot, like and not that he should, but he's, he clearly shows a lot of shame about this. You get that during the conversation because two people kind of like stumble into this room that they're in and Monday tries to hide. And when he does that, Hugo even calls him out afterwards about trying to hide. And if that is the case, I mean, given this era, this is Oscar Wilde, you know, the love that shall not be named. This is a very effective blackmail. It's against the law. The man could be put in prison for this if this came out. And particularly with his role as a detective of the police, that job would be gone. So if Hugo is really holding this as blackmail, it's effective blackmail. And it sets up that now we have at least two people that Hugo is effectively keeping in a certain form of, you know, indentured servitude as long as he wishes to get what he wants out of the relationship. He seems to have a bit of a pattern. He appeals to someone's sexuality. He gets them in a, he gets them drunk. Mm-hmm. He gets them in a compromised sexual situation and then he blackmails them with that situation. And he, um, it helps. That's called a, pre- that's called a predator. <laughs> It helps that he can. He has absolutely no uh, reservations about being involved in these sexual encounters if he if he needs to be. Like he'll just he'll he seems to, he'll just fuck anybody. He doesn't care. Um, I, I, and and on top of that, he doesn't seem to have anything in the way of moral compunctions on just emotionally manipulating those around him. That's kind of just how he does business and goes about his day. Frank leaves and Hugo mutters to himself, the first time you were drunk, the first time. Um, I don't believe everything that comes out of Hugo's mouth. I do believe this. I do not think it was one time. Uh, as shown, it <laughs> Frank tries to play off that, yeah, I totally know that guy was your agent. I was going to the back room to see you. How much do we believe that? Or was Frank looking for a bit of a hookup right there? He was 100% looking for a hookup there. Just making um, sure. Yeah, cuts a Horatio and Malady. And he has healed her. He has placed hands on her. He has healed her. Malady picks up the bullet and asks if that's what Amelia's, uh, Amalia's atonement looks like. Horatio, quote, I think you blame her for something she couldn't control. And then Malady fires back in one of her rare cogent sentences, I wonder who you'll blame when the time comes. Malady tells him to go. Horatio still thinks it's his car. Uh, it finally pieces it together that it's not. Um, funny moment, moment right before he leaves. Um, I don't know if you caught this, but, um, you know, Horatio had just healed malady and he put a little like bandage on her and he goes to leave and malady just starts to go pick at the bandage and as soon as he it's almost like as soon as he touches she touches it horatio goes don't scratch that and she just goes like and it was such a funny moment because like i don't really identify with much of malady because she's sort of this crazy joker-esque character but that sort of thing of like you just touch your wound and the doctor goes don't touch it you go oh god shut up (laughs) 
<laughs> anyway, I it, thought it was pretty it, funny. That was one of the moments where I, when I started this episode, I said there were some the actual funny moments. That was one of them for me. I thought that actress who plays Melody, I don't give her a lot of credit. Not gonna, I'm going to continue not giving her a lot of credit. But that was a little funny moment. It was, and I'll, I'll give her that. That was a fun, very human moment between the two. And it's interesting, the scene really feeds into what we've been talking about a lot this episode, is that last two episodes, our opinion about Amalia and the, seemingly the opinion of those around her was pretty positive and anything improving. This episode seems to be built around every person around Amalia kind of either doesn't trust her, doesn't like her, or thinks she's going to lead to disaster. It's interesting how much that has shifted from the last two episodes, just to see, I guess, the other side of the opinion fence. Well, we're in the age of the anti-hero, but they're going to have to be very careful here because if you if you take Amalia off the board as the protagonist, you don't have anyone because Penance, as much as I mm-hmm. like Penance, uh, as much as I will, I will I will stand up for her <laughs> You're in the face of your abuse. Uh, uh-huh. She is uh-huh. not a protagonist, and she is not a character that's capable of leading this show. It's got to be Amalia, so they're going to have to be careful about how much they put her through the gutter. Um, cut to a strange scene of a guy in a jail cell and an officer tells him to come with him. I, it was pretty weird. Um, did, did, did you assume or put together this was, you know, chain gun arm guy? Um, no. And I, um, when he was fiddling with his arm, I thought that's a very strange arm the man has there. Well, yeah, of course you figured out later, but is, is, are we supposed to believe that's essentially some kind of pus that is leaking out of that guy's arm? Because it, it, it is green, it is noxious, but it appears to be coming out in crystals that liquefy when they hit the ground. I don't understand anything about this other than it's clear that the gun really does attach to his arm, like in his yeah. arm. Well, um, it, 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 and that's what they were is, trying to show us. This is a fascinating collection of questions that I'm sure we are going to be able to entertain for just dozens of episodes in the future. This is going to be a central character that we're just going to continue to follow for a long time to come. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. This guy is clearly one of those that are top billing in season two. Absolutely. Cuts a penance showing Amalia the poster. Amalia says it's time for a visit. She says we're going to go check these people out. Lucy says she'll go along um, with her. And mm-hmm. um, they arrive at the door and knock. And interesting move here from Amalia. She does the knock, then the kick in. Not quite sure what the purpose of that is. Um, I don't know, Spencer, if you've done a lot of uh, shaking people down, but I don't do the knock, then the kick in. You do one or the other. Yeah, it, it, knocking gets people looking at the door and standing up and taking active action with respect to you before they you knock at the door. They're staring at you then. If they have a gun, sense. you get shot. Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, Ali immediately knocks the lady out who answers the door. One punch. Woo! Gives her the, gives her the old one. Um, then she sees uh, one of the tall guys uh, and, and they start to fight. And while they fight, theory time, she hits the dude, knocks the hood off of him. Ah, mm-hmm. it's not a dude. It's like a robot, maybe? Look, is what this is ro- this cyborg thing? This is like... That, that was the distinction I was going to ask you. Is this a robot? Or is this a cyborg? Because there's clearly human elements in him, but was this a dude that had mechanical things crafted on him? Or is this a Terminator that has human skin put over the top? I'm I'm logically favoring the former because it's less science fiction and maybe a little bit more grounded in reality and it could explain what's been happening to the kidnapped touched. But I don't know, and there's a hell of a lot of metal in there. Uh, My guess is there's a dark side penance somewhere who's creating these things. Hmm. Um, the penis might not be the only person who has a turn that, that makes her technologically adept and, and that they are being, I think they are machines that are made to look like people. That's my guess. I, 
that's possible. One thing to note, too, is that if you look down whatever this thing is, Gullet, there appears to be a glowing blue light inside him, or at least filling his mouth, that more than vaguely brings to mind the kind of, what we assume to be the core of the ship that they're slowly unearthing underground. So that may in some way suggest that the technology that's at play there is drawing from that or mirrored off that. But yeah, the, the shipwreck that, what we think is the alien shipwreck has like a power source and they're, they're tapping that power source through the lobotomized people, um, mm. all, that, all that cheap labor that they're getting through them to create these things. But anyway, one of them is not enough for our girl Amalia. She does take yeah. the guy down. I was a little disappointed how fast they took him out. And that's going to come up again a couple times this episode of where this was a fascinating visual. This was a guy that's been set up as being a really, you know, intimidating kind of threat. They drop him in like six seconds, which was a little disappointing when you've got that kind of profound visual presentation with a villain that you're interested in finding out more about how they work. Well, not that the, not that I really think this show is that worried about consistency, especially when the fight scenes are concerned. But here's my guess is that there's a lot more of these things. And Amalia, they're going to have to be stormtroopers at a certain point because there's going to be fights and battles and she's going to have to take down like 20 of them at a time. That's Mm -hmm. my guess. So she had to make quick work of this one. At least for stormtroopers, the first scene we set them up was them being competent and them taking out a lot of people with ease. You kind of need that as a framing to take them as a legitimate threat going forward, but at least they've got a very scary visual. So maybe they're just going to work off that. Amalia tells Lucy to take the lady back to the orphanage to get the truth out of her. Lucy smartly says Desiree will do it. That's right, Desiree. My girl, my new favorite character. She has a she has a, a, a plot to play. Uh, this is a this very episode. useful person for these kind of operations Shit, they have. Yeah, are you kidding me? Like, I mean, if you are, I mean, in pretty much any enterprise, Desiree's skill set is huge. Do we have something that involves talking to at least one other person? Yes, Desiree needs to be there. Yeah, it's Absolutely. Great. Amelia starts going through the records and says they'll need to tell Lavinia about what they are doing there. Ooh. So clearly Amalia, Lavinia, not on the same page uh, right now. Lucy asks Amalia if Penance is still doing her thing that evening, having Mary sing through the brightener or the amplifier or whatever we want to call mm-hmm. it. And Amalia says, yes, it's still on. It's going to happen that evening. So this is this episode three, one day. <laughs> this is one day. It's a long day. Lots going down. <laughs> Um, it, it, anything else on this scene? Too, well, it's interesting too is that what Amalia packs up. She basically just sends Lucy take the girl, take the you know greet her woman or whatever she is back to base, talk to her, get whatever else. Meanwhile, Amalia starts just throwing papers in boxes. Main one we got to see was what looked like almost like a photo album that seems yeah. to be full of every one of the touched that has been taken and diligently recorded and photographed. Yeah, it looked like a sort of like um, like just documentation of all the touched people that they have either, I guess, killed or taken to the doctor and had that weird lobotomy type thing happen to them. Yep. Cut to Frank arriving to see Mary. I believe Mary called on him. Um, Frank must have had a cup of coffee on the way. A little less, little less word slur <laughs> during this conversation. He's a functional alcoholic in a lot of ways. Yeah, cold shower and a cup of coffee. That'll do wonders. Frank asks her if she's in any danger, and Mary says no. Um, clearly something's on Mary's mind here, and Frank tries to coax it out of her by asking if there's something up with Amalia. And Mary says no. It's just stranger than she, shot, she thought, being around all the touched. And what I don't think she's saying here, but what I think Mary means is the orphanage itself is strange. She just gets a weird vibe from the orphanage, and that's pretty clear that she got that from Jump Street. Yeah, and, and it hasn't helped that no one's answering her questions. The yeah. only she, When she asked Amalia, what is the purpose of this place? 
why are we here? Why are all these people clustered together? Why are you looking to cluster more people together? What is our plan going forward? Amali didn't answer the question at all. Like, no. didn't even do, like, a, a token, this is our byline, we include this on in our advertisements kind of explanation. No, Amalia just said, I like to get drunk, I like to fight, and I like to have sex. Oh, aren't I so vulnerable? That's how, really it, how that conversation yeah, went. Yeah, it really was. And it's just, we don't know how it works, and apparently those that are there don't know how or even why this, or, this orphanage exists. So, I share Mary's concerns, particularly with the superior knowledge that we have, and... I'm kind of glad that she's voicing them to Frank because I think there needs to be some kind of outside source into this or outside, you know, contact with respect to this very nebulous organization. She then explains she's struggling to try to to find a voice to sing her song. Frank off... Here's an interesting exchange here. Frank offers to find her a place. He even offers up his spare room. Then he kind of backs up. He says, well, you know, I won't... You know, and I think he's saying I won't make a move. And Mary just very quickly says, I know you wouldn't. Says it a little too fast. Mary says, look, no, I, it's, I, I know you're not going to make a move because you're a good guy, but also, and then she says that there's a part of himself that he hates. So here's what we are meant to take from this. Last episode, this guy right here, Lee, hand up, drug Mary through the dirt with leaving this guy <laughs> at the altar. I raked well, her over the coals. I probably mentioned it four or five times. It's a, it's a two-hour podcast at least once every half hour. I mentioned that Mary left this guy at the altar. She deserves to give him an explanation. The mm-hmm. show then proceeded to write in a plot line to actually make it reasonable that there was no explanation. There's no explanation needed. She knows that he's he's in the men. Like, that's, that's well, the thing. It appears that he still needed that explanation because he didn't know that. He didn't know why, and he was clearly agonizing a bit over why it might have been, which given his own self-loathing on this subject, it really would have been better on her to just say up front, dude, I know you prefer men, I don't think that really works for me as much as you care for me, so do we really want this to happen? That would have been a polite adult conversation to really just sit out there. But what I'm what I'm trying to say, you're right, but what I'm trying to say is... I'm with you. I'm you, with give, you. you give me, guy, girl leaves guy at altar. <laughs> And then You're you say, jump fill, on that shit. fill in blank for a reason that makes it like kind of okay. Like this mm-hmm. is like one of the reasons that you could possibly come up with to make it like kind of okay. As we see a couple times in this conversation, Mary can be in the right and still be a bit of a dick. Yeah. You can be perfectly justified in not going through the marriage that may ultimately not be in any way happy or fulfilling to you because of the particular orientation of your partner. Fine. That is absolutely your call. Tell him before you do it. Don't just leave him as hanging there in limbo. Point number two. If you're going to reveal to your partner that you know that he is either gay by some combination there other, be a bit nicer about it than Mary is at the start of this conversation. Mary yeah. is really coarse and direct. Yeah. I know you wouldn't. Yeah, I know you wouldn't. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I can stay in your spare room. No problem. I'll just walk around naked all the time. You can't do anything about it. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of... It was tough. It was, it was a tough it, it was one. Tough. But she, she does round it out a little bit better. She lands she, in a decent place. It's also a thing, too, is that Frank very much loves her. We've seen that. We know that. We heard from we heard through by means of Desiree that there is no you know hidden motivation or hidden feelings there or even a mask that he's putting on. That this is clearly something that is honest, well-held feelings. So... The fact that the relationship didn't work out is still very much a situation that is still painful for him, even if he has this kind of, you know, doubt or self-loathing that's going to play with respect to it. I've got a theory. 
My theory is that, yes, he likes Mary, but he was sneaking off with boys in, like, bathrooms and stuff while they were together. Yeah, that is probably a pretty reasonable thing. We have <laughs> we know at least twice, and yeah. we still apparently see him setting up for a third. And I'm So I think he was willing... doing that while they were together, and I think Mary caught wind of it, and Mary just left him at the altar. That's it. And you know what? Like... There's no, there's no villain in that sequence. There's no, no bad guy. This, this is two, this is two ships passing in the night. It's just unfortunate and sad for the both of them because they clearly do care for each other. Mary says she, yeah, I know, and it, you know, it's good, it's good that he's going to be around to protect her for a long time. Mary says she won't say any more, other than to say that she will never hate him ever in their the two long lives that they're going to live. Frank is obviously wildly uncomfortable here. <laughs> Um, he thinks he thinks there is some shame. You know, it's obvious that he he feels some shame. He's uncomfortable with the conversation, so he doesn't really give her a lot in the way of talking back to her. Mary then gives him this quote: "Potential line of the episode: You'll always be the man I call when there is trouble, and when there's not trouble, I guess." Which is a very sweet line. Yeah, man. You 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 were a little bit negative on some on some of the relationship scenes between the two of them. The two of them have a it's a weird relationship. It, doesn't really necessarily even work for them, at least, you know, historically. But it's a sweet, caring relationship where they clearly support each other in a way that so few other characters do. So You just like that line in the last episode, I'm sorry about your bad day. I could tell that just that just got to your icy heart, Spencer. That was a that, 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 that line gotcha. You, you and your assumptions, I've got a heart at all. It is straight up just mechanical engineering the same way you've seen on this show. Don't cast, you know, human heart aspersions on me. I thought that one might have got through to you. It I'm got sorry to me. I like that name. line. That was a good line. It was a, it was very sweet. Frank then asked her it, the next time she sings that kind of singing, you know, the, 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 yeah. the special kind of singing, he'd like to be there. She says, well, you know, only the touch can hear it. And he says, well, I'd like to give it a go. So I'm going to tell you <laughs> something here. Um... I very much identify with Frank in this situation because you you tell me, all right, there's all these people that got a magic power. You don't have it, Lee. And I say, okay, great. And then this person can sing to him. And I'll be like, okay, I want to hear it. (laughs) I'm just going to want to hear it. I'm with Frank. Like, let's give it a go. Let me just, let me just listen to it. Now, also, it makes a lot of sense, you know, because you need somebody with a gun there with him at the end of the episode. So there's there's a whole plot thing going on with why he would want to try. But I just identified with it personally. Like, you're going to tell me I can't hear this song that you're singing? It's supposed to be the most important song anybody's ever sung? Yeah, I'm going to, I actually want to try. Anyway, we cut to the Gentleman's Club with Lord Masson. Oh, my dear Lord. Um, they are having some sort of discussion about finances. Um, here's the thing about the Lord Masson scenes with, uh, with, with these sort of gentlemen's clubs is they seem at this point to amount to nothing. Like we, we talked about this earlier. Like we, we like Lord Masson, or at least we think he's important. He's an interesting he seems to have his, you, you've established that he's got his daughter, like in the, in the dungeon, um, I don't hear, let me, let me explain <laughs> that theory a little bit. I think that's possible. I would honestly be disappointed if they go that way, that you've got an interesting enough villain from an outside perspective, from a different kind of way. You don't need to have, to have him doing essentially the same thing as the other villains you set up are doing. You could do your own unique thing with him and you'll be a more compelling character, but it's possible. I hope it's true. I, but what I'm, what I'm trying to get at here is that they seem to be throwing in these like, Lord Masson is like the puppet master in his gentleman's club looking at high finance or politics or whatever, but it all seems to have come to nothing so far. So they're going to have to start giving me some stakes with these scenes. Otherwise, yeah. I'm going to check out because this one really did nothing for me. 
I, they're teasing this one too much without any real explanation for why we should care. That you've set up so many other villains, so many other you know wheels within wheels, unless they're directly affiliated with those, which I don't think they are, from at least what we've set up so far, it just seems irrelevant. You, you, you need to give me something to care about there, like you said. Yeah, cut to Lavinia, who's telling Amalia they need to get the flyers down. Amalia has a different idea. She wants to lure them there, so she wants to keep the posters up. She wants to keep a, keep a watch on the house. Um, Amalia then mentions to Lavinia that Mary will be singing her song in the park that evening. Very important, very important little detail there is that uh, Lavinia now has the information that, um, that, that Mary will be singing in the park. And... This is one scene that I think is a bit of a casualty of just the rushing momentum of this show. This is a scene of where you have our protagonist talking with somebody who we ultimately know is one of the key villains, revealing that she knows about the villain's plot without knowing that she's the villain. That's an incredibly important, momentous scene that is just kind of rushed through to the point I almost had to realize it in retrospect. When she also, and she also divulges that the heroine um, of the story, I think that's the right, heroine, heroine, um, will be in a very vulnerable public position here in about two hours. Like, that's also pretty important, but I agree, they could have, they could have let this breathe a little bit here. Give it a little bit more time, do a little few glances, just even focus on Lavinia a little bit more at the last part of the scene. Something to set this off for how important it really is, or how just plot relevant it really is. Cut to the lady um, who's who's at the house where all the touched are being lured to. You know that that old lady. The and creature. She's, she's being interrogated by some sort of robot. Um, AI is interrogating her, Spencer. It's very <laughs> mysterious. And whoa, the reveal! They are actually at the workshop. And my girl Desiree sits down to interrogate her. You, if you're getting interrogated, uh, you do not want to be sitting across from Desiree. That is problems. Yeah, knowing that, why even do the AI thing to I don't start? Know. Uh, that was obviously just for dramatic. That's why I like, kind of made fun of it. Like it's like it's completely just for show and just for drama. Uh, yeah, it does. It does. Because you already have Desiree. You don't need. You don't need to put on it. You don't need. To, you don't need to intimidate them. I mean, it might, might be more effective if you don't. Seems like a penance special right there. That was probably Penance's idea. <laughs> penance had a fun thing. Penance wanted to use fun thing. Yeah, this lady. Um, so. Gonna struggle with this scene a little bit because I feel like the yeah. same the same writer that writes Malady's crazy, non sequitur babbling things that she does when she's committing crimes wrote this scene because this lady just goes into just just babble nothing talking about some woman who can turn wine into water things into water I guess it's a woman who was touched who showed up at the at the at the house she's, she's explaining that. I, I rewatched this twice or three times just so I can understand a bit about what is happening. From okay, what I'm well, able to you, put you, together, you take over because it seemed like nothing to me. There's two key details that we get out of this. Point number one: their employer, or at least the middleman for their employer, is a man, tall, fur coat, well-spoken, but not too posh. So we know that now. We can hmm, possibly sounds ass- like you. Shut up! I'm not doing that. <laughs> uh, so we know that information, and we're going to then endlessly theorize about who to assign that very generic series of labels to somebody that we know or somebody we haven't met yet. Can't be Lord Masson. Man is posh. Man is posh as all jazz. But it's a middleman. She even says at one point that the, the actual boss wouldn't show up or whatever else. So she suggests it's a middleman. So it could even be just a point of contact for somebody else that we know. Um, the other thing that she reveals is that she thinks that there are experiments being performed in the various people that they take. 
And then she goes on an extensive non sequitur talking about her own past and possibly why she's employed in this role, of where she reveals that it was her daughter that had water powers that could clean water, transform it into different things kind of thing, and became obsessed with her own abilities, or at least frames it in that kind of way. Wine and, into water, the reverse Jesus. Yes, turn and then clean a well of all kind of things. It's very useful series of abilities for this particular age of cholera. Um, but this particular person could not cope with that, religious reasons possibly, who, who can know, and so she intentionally drowned her in a pool of water, possibly a bathtub, and also her unborn grandchild, too, to boot. Which sets off Harriet. Um, uh, Lucy? Well, I mean, it set, well, I mean it Harriet, sets Harriet, Harriet cries out, but Lucy is the one that goes after her. Mary tries to stop yeah. her, and it's almost all she wrote for Mary when she touches, <laughs> touches Lucy when Lucy's getting fired up like that. And then Penance drops this little nugget about Lucy, which meant great, great. Like this scene was kind of trash, but like this little nugget here was really good to reveal because Lucy up until now has been like kind of a bit character. And mm. like this, this, this revelation that she figured out that she had this turn when she picked up her daughter and, and crushed her bones and she didn't, didn't realize what she was doing. I mean, that yeah. is a tough one. That, that is a really tough kind of reveal that that degree of background and that degree of certain kind of just brusque standoff dish that we get out of this character. It explains a lot of it. So it's, it's a useful kind of information. As you say, the rest of it, kind, kind of okay, kind of rough. I, I mean, it, it almost like just, they want to frame the greeter woman as just the singularly most evil or just despicable person that anybody in this room could be around or have met. To yeah, the point really, that they just kind of umbrella taser into unconsciousness. Well, they they all reach kind of a crescendo of like being angry yeah. with her and kind of jumping at her, and it, it all kinds of falls apart. And then they they taser her, and she goes she goes down. And then Harriet then says that they should ask, they should have asked the lady how many girls, um, or how many people I guess were killed. How many people will never hear she, Mary's song? She'll but unless you just killed her, you can't ask her again. So you know that door is not necessarily closed. I think it's more of like a poetic thing. I don't think they really sure. have an interest in asking her. I think she's just well, like speculating well, on how many how many people that lady did the same yeah. thing to. It, it does set up one of the possible weaknesses of Desiree's ability is that she can get you talking, she can't get you to shut up. And so if you start going in a direction that is just directly antagonizing everybody in the room, sorry, that free flow is just going to go. Yeah, well, I mean, you need adults around when she's flexing this superpower. You can't have people who are just going to flip flip out. I mean, like, you know, they, they needed <laughs> they needed to chill out here. This this was they, they, there was an overreaction to what I mean. They knew this was a bad lady, and they were interrogating her. And when they freaked out like that, I felt like it was just a little bit of like dramatic effect. Yeah, this was a weird interrogation committee. If this was you know your prime people to break down information from somebody. Um, I'm not confident in the orphanage's abilities to do that going forward. It seems like Amalia is really the only, like... Or Lavinia. Potentially Lavinia, but she's not yeah. going to show up in person to do this. Yeah. It, Amalia is kind of the only field agent or general purpose agent the orphanage has. Everybody else, either they're untrained, undisciplined, whatever else, but they're not seemingly well-suited for a lot of the operations they need. Yeah. Uh, anything else on this before we jump to uh, your favorite scene of the episode? No, let's move on to that. Cut to Amalia in a carriage, and she's looking through that book of, of the afflicted girls who got got from the house, and um, bam! 
Woo! Out of jarring. nowhere, jarring, the carriage gets turned over as they're passing over a bridge, and Amalia gets dumped into water. Yet again, Amalia getting dumped into water. How many times we see this? It, it's a motif. It's now been at least once an episode. Um, then we get a hell of a fight scene. Um, and it's, it's a, it's well shot. It's well done. I mean, it's like above, above water, below water. We're getting the, 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 the water lens below so we can see what's going on in the kind of murky dark water. And it is a big goon who has a big chain just around his neck. I can't tell if this is like a, is this like a, somebody who's touched? Or is this just like a idiot? He doesn't seem to be like a normal person. Um, he looks to be incredibly tall, mm-hmm. uh, but he's goonish for sure. He's goonish for sure. I'm, I'm pretty sure he, I, I know this because I watched the after episode, this is the Beggar King's big tall agent dude that we've seen before in a few things. So this is the Beggar King who's who's put a hit out on Amalia, presumably because of Amalia Amalia's part in, I guess, disrespecting him and his brand on that, that shipment gone awry of opium at the beginning of the episode. Yeah, at this point, he may even assume that Amalia was directly affiliated with Bonfire Annie in terms of that attack. Cause his, not yet. His, it, what? Not, not, not yet. directly affiliated yet. Not yet. But he has reasons to think so because his agents directly told him that she was there right after the attack. So it's a, it's a reasonable enough jump from A to C kind of thing, though it's a pretty extreme response to order a hit on her in public in broad daylight. This man doesn't mess around. Horatio, let it be known. Um, you do not mess with the Beggar King. And I mean, he, he does, even though the name is lame, um, and I'm not quite sure why he matters to the plot at all at this point. He seems like a just complete distraction. Um, he does seem like he's, he, he doesn't play around. He does seem like he'll just murk somebody for no reason. Oh, yeah. And- or, you know, very, very, um, very flimsy reasons anyway. Because this is not, you know... I would, if I was advising the Beggar King here, I would say, I know that you have this big tough guy persona. Your brand has to be, you don't mess with a Beggar King guy, you know, Marlo, my name is my name, right? Out in the street. But you might be biting off a little bit more than you can chew here because even if you kill Amalia, then every single one of these touch people in the orphanage are going to be after you. Yeah, it it seems a very rash decision on his part. It also seems rash to kind of send your main enforcer alone to do this. Yeah, yeah, you got plenty of guys. Why don't you send ten? Um, But you know, wouldn't have made for as good a fight. And from a pure, I mean, we've discussed how this fits in the plot. Some confusions or concerns there. But from a pure filmmaking standpoint, this was masterful. This was was really great. The sound design of like that first moment of when you realize that this guy is touched when he first starts walking across the water. That sudden note that it hits and that kind of pulsing rhythm as he's goes going across it. And the sheerest intimidation value of just and, and perspective uh, that they, they put on of her looking up through the water as he stands and looms over her, thrashing about with that chain of his. That's a really great, well-done filmmaking that was a very tense scene. I quite enjoyed it. It's probably, as you've already noted, probably my favorite scene that they filmed yet on this show. I, um... Uh, as as people who know me know, I'm a professional wrestling fan, and they drew hard <laughs> on professional wrestling. Oh, so yeah. I would like to say just some of the moves. So first off, the Beggar King's goon at one point starts a a choke slam on Amalia. She mm. counters with an arm bar, mm-hmm. and uh, she eventually leaps up out of the water up into a modified Hurricane Rana to bring him down, and ends with a Hell's Gate submission, <laughs> which is a move made famous by the Undertaker. 
Uh, she does eventually ditch the dress. So we've got three straight episodes in which she loses her dress. Penance does comment on this later. So at least we get somebody, uh, you know, t- addressing the elephant in the room there. But mm-hmm. it was a lot, there was a lot of wrestling moves going on there, which I really appreciated. Whoever, whoever blocked this scene, whoever did the choreograph, uh, choreography, like I, shout out to them because they're clearly a wrestling fan. How do you feel about the fact that for both this and The Mandalorian, you know, two of the most advertised shows on television, how do you feel that apparently they are run by severe wrestling fans that want to get both professional wrestlers and professional wrestling moves in every scene they can? I've got something to just level with our audience. Most of our audience, I'm guessing, probably liked English. If you like the, if you're you're seeking out the Nevers, when you were in high school, you probably liked English. You probably read. You probably like interesting stories where there's subtext and there's symbolism and there's allegories and there are all this cool stuff that you can read into and you can have a good time and we have a good time talking about it right here so you probably don't run in circles with a lot of people who watch professional wrestling but let me tell you something it's immensely popular (laughs) you it is Mm -hmm. a lot Mm -hmm. of people love it and it shows up in when you know it because i i watch it i like it and i can i can spot it I'm telling you, it shows up so many places. It would shock you. If you're not a wrestling fan and you don't know to look for it, it would shock you just how much it shows up in popular media. Absolutely. Definitely. And it was really fun to see it here. Now, we've noted that there's some plot concerns as to why all this is happening. There's also some logical concerns that she's able to choke this guy out underwater by just kind of vaguely pulling on the chain. you you don't really have much of a stability point to have any degree of, you know, force while you're underwater. You're and floating. how did she vault herself up by holding the chain from underwater up to the modified hurricane? Uh, I don't know how she got that much, um, much power. Yeah, you don't really have much of the way of force when you're underwater. That's kind of the part of the problem. Unless you can find something to brace yourself on, you don't really have that. But superpowers, sure. Makes for some fun filmmaking, if nothing. But we're else. getting we're getting more and more evidence, and you know maybe we just have to come. Me, Spencer, let's just come to terms with it. When they're when we see fight scenes in this show, they're gonna kind of dis, you know, they're gonna play with reality, and it's not gonna be consistent, and they're not gonna have general rules that they follow, and we're just gonna have to be okay with that. Basically, what they're gonna give us is just cool fight scenes. Like, uh, can we be okay with that? Or no, you, I, you're still a no. It's going to be a struggle for me, but I will try. And like you note, the more I see, the more I realize that they're going in that direction. That there's going to be a certain willful suspension of disbelief that comes that comes out when the gloves come off. And I'll do my best to come to terms with that. I'd prefer if it was a bit more grounded, or at least had explanations attached to the worries where it's not grounded. But I'll manage. So we... Now jump to the most consequential episode, or a scene of the episode. One thing before we leave that scene. Okay. Is Bigger King Enforcer Dude dead? Yeah. I'm really disappointed if that's the case for the same reason I said earlier. If you're introducing these kind of fun, interesting characters with interesting abilities, stop having your hero kill them off inside of, like, you know, a single scene. Why do Keep we think that he's the only Enforcer that the Bigger King has? He might have a stable of these guys. He's the only one we've been advertised with so far. Yeah, but he, we may get more like weird goons with weird powers that the Beggar King has at his disposal. But I think this guy's dead. I mean, maybe not, but I think he is. Um, now the most, this is where, I, you know, it was funny. I was doing my notes for this show and I cut about halfway through and, and my wife came in. It's like, how's, how's the new episode? She, she wasn't watching it with me. I said, well, you know, every show needs a filler episode. And... <laughs> 
And this one is obviously a lot of dialogue and it's basically a filler. And for me, I've said it multiple times in this podcast now, about 50 minutes of this show was a filler. This is the final 10 minutes where it's clearly not a filler. Very <laughs> consequential scene here. We jump to the park and the music right away should tell us something is amiss. Yet again, the show leaves us breadcrumbs, Spencer. It lets us know when something is about to happen because the music, it's not... Uh, it's not good glory day. Everything is great. Let's all celebrate music. It is is downtrodden. A lot of minor key music. Um, great line from Penance here uh, when when Amalia shows up. Is that is it that is it that you just hate dresses? <laughs> um, yeah, which I thought was pretty why, funny. Why did she take off her dress? Uh, because she was because the so when she was underwater, the dress was she was not she um, it was inhibiting her movement underwater. Her her. It was getting caught, like it was billowing, and it okay. was she was moving slower, so she ditched it so she could just kind of move around faster underwater. I'll buy that. I, I was thinking, I was thinking when she was taking off, that she was use it like you know when submarines like load a dead body or various clothing into a torpedo, so to convince the ships above that they've been destroyed or whatever else. But that wouldn't make any sense. Your explanation works. I buy that. Yeah, she was like kicking, and it was going very slow. And she like looked around, and then just tore it off. And then when she kicked, she actually got some power. But um, we see that Mary is there. The team fires up this thing that Penance has apparently created in an afternoon, and uh, Mary stands there and starts to sing. Frank is there. So when Mary is singing the subtitles, I just want to point this out. I watched the show in subtitles. When Mary is singing, the subtitles say, "Sings in foreign language." Yeah, noted that. That was interesting. So just. Put that aside for for theory, for theory crafting and speculation. Mm-hmm. Um, we see the song just hitting all the touch people right in the feels. It is just mm-hmm. it's speaking to them. They're speaking back. It's it's doing the thing the song is supposed to do. Um, and then we have a great moment where it cuts to Frank. We get Frank's perspective. Silence. That was a nice touch. I like that. The, really good filmmaking there. What? Yeah, when she, I did, I didn't really put two and two together. When she said only the touched can hear it, I thought that she meant like you know emotionally they only really get out of it the same thing like no literally it is silent to everybody but them yeah uh this the singing goes on it's beautiful the touch to hearing it we even see that the contraption is working for you know distance around maybe like a mile around other touched people are hearing the song they're all feeling it everybody's coming together kumbaya spencer everything is great and pop bang Mary's been shot. Before we get to that, one second. The um, uh, I think I think her name is Harriet. That's the it's the uh, the Indian girl with uh, ice powers, right? Yes. Her husband is apparently not touched because he didn't seem like it was connecting to him. I didn't catch that. I, it, it it did not seem like it like the same little you know connect little connecting beam that goes between the various touch was 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 going on to him, and he seemed like a little bit baffled at first. How everybody was reacting to. Yeah, so he but. might not be touched. He might just be at the orphanage just to be there with her. Possibly. But yes, as you say, we have an assassination attempt in a way I did not see coming. Uh, not an attempt. Um, it, it, it's an assassination, yes. Yeah, as as everything is culminating in this big apex and it's all going great, um, Mary is pop. She's shot. Now, this is a show that has showed us people getting shot before and they mm-hmm. lived. So the show had to take some pains here to show... This is not one of those situations. Mary is shot multiple times. I think was, I think I counted maybe five or six bullets go into her. She falls dead. We look, and it's man with hand cannon, um, been released from prison, and he is there, and he is shooting her. And not just once, not just twice, not just six times. They unload a clip into Mary right here. I right thought now. it was. It's... I thought I counted six, but it could be more. I mean, they, they, I mean, they were just you know. 
I think what they're doing from a filmmaking perspective is they've sh- they're going to show a lot of people get shot and live in this show, and they had mm-hmm. to make it clear that this was a different kind of shooting. And as we also previously know, yeah, I think it's a very good read that they want to make this gratuitous just so there's no reasonable debate that she's going to come back in an episode or two. She's this dead. character is dead. Yes. Also, as we noted, the fact that, that uh, Horatio Cousins is not present cuts off that lifeline, too. That there is nobody that can just potentially step in and heal her as magical as his abilities are. Yeah, when they're writing this show, because they've given him that superpower, they have to be very careful about where he is. Because if he was here, he could have probably saved Mary. Very possible. We don't know what the limits of his abilities are, and I don't think we're ever going to get those just so they can use them however they need to. So their way of not using those is to have him physically not present. Right. Yeah. Um, so the guy with the rotating handgun is is shot Mary, and uh, Frank is on the case. He must have really sobered up between those beers and those whiskey shots. Because he, and with his Same one, one gun, with a, I think he's got back maybe one one. A clip in there so he's probably got about six or seven shots he's able mm. to go over and uh he puts a bullet right in the eye of of the uh the handgun man not before getting clipped in the ear but he does get his revenge he kills the yeah guy. yeah lucky lucky the handgun dude's apparently better at fixed targets because frank's just kind of running at him but handgun dude is having a hard time leading him um, well you ever played paintball spencer i mean i, know I, I played, played paintball, paintball with you. you know you know, everybody seems to be playing by the same rules in paintball, right? You get behind whatever the structure is. You poke your gun out. Then, then there's always that one asshole that just runs, runs right at you, yeah. kamikaze style. He's the one that always kills you. And so I, it kind of made sense to me that, like, Frank, like, obviously was overcoming the motion because Mary's been shot. So he takes this strategy. I, he probably this wouldn't was a take suicidal charge. Any, yeah. yeah, he probably wouldn't. Do, but it was like so it probably caught this guy so off guard. Um, that it was actually effective. I agree. I think it's how they're playing it out. And Frank did well. Despite the fact he got a yeah. clip to the ear, he dropped this target and prevented anybody else from getting hurt. Yeah, she, he, Frank, real MVP of the situation. It's good that he he showed up there because otherwise, the Lord knows that guy might have killed. I mean, Amalia maybe eventually would have snapped out of it and done something. She, but she's like really the only other person there that would have any any chance of stopping this guy, right? Yeah, it seems like partly, I guess, maybe as a result of Mary's ability being suddenly cut off. All of the touched are just downright concussed by this, which may be reasonable. They're seeing somebody be assassinated in front of them. But particularly even those that we've seen that are very cool under fire look almost just lost and confused to suddenly have this cut off from them. Yeah. Well, then we see all the touched start mourning. Her penance is crying. Frank is crying. Lucy's crying. It's a Tough scene. Tough scene. Anything you want to talk about here before we go to the concluding scene of the episode? It It was a tough scene. It was also, for me... This show, it, it defies me. Yeah, I, I was. We were fully expecting this character would be a key part going forward in this show. The MacGuffin, we can debate whether we thought that was a good idea or not, just in terms of what her overall protective role in the plot would be. And they gave us that, and then cut it off halfway through the first half of the first season. It's jarring. I mean, I, I suppose it's bold to a certain degree, but it kind of threw me off my game of just that Man, they are not afraid to introduce interesting concepts and then just get rid of them immediately. So I'll say this. Uh, in the last episode, I said that they were getting dangerously close with Mary to just having a damsel in distress who needs white knighting every episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said in 2021, I'm not interested in that story. It's it's boring to me. And I, I don't I don't have a particular interest in like see episode after episode having to watch this like helpless character get saved. Mm-hmm. And I, the fact that they just went ahead and killed her off Gave, I mean, I could see, if you don't like it, 
that's fine. And there's probably legitimate ways to argue or legitimate reasons to argue that it was a bad move or that it made you disinterested in the show or whatever. It was rushed or whatever. But for my purposes, because I was coming at it from this character is dangerously close to getting very boring. The fact they killed her off so fast gave me some faith in the show that they recognized what they were doing with that character. There was a little bit of a hot one note character and they were just got rid of her. Right. And the fact that they did it, I thought it was bold, it was jarring, but I also thought if you're going to kill somebody, that's a smart one to kill because I didn't think they had a lot, a lot, much more meat left on that bone with that character, if you know what I'm saying. May, they had one of two options. They either had the option of developing her as a character beyond just simply her role that her abilities will play in the plot. They've had a few problems with that with other characters. Or they have her play that role and then eliminate her because that was her role and that was her purpose and now it is done. They went with option number two. Yep. I thought was the character development they were giving in this episode. They were gonna, they were gonna go option number one. They didn't. I think I, would prefer, I think I think I would have preferred option number one, but I I can respect them going aggressively in the option number two direction. I, I when they when they did it, I stopped and I thought, okay, I might be with the showrunners here. I, I I like the choice. I thought it was a good character to kill, and it seemed to. Now we will transition to the the last scene of the episode. It did seem to do like she served a purpose right because it looks like this is my read on the scene where it's the evening the girls in the orphanage are still mourning we still have amalia who hasn't put a, put a dress on yet because i mean we have to get you know uh, uh laura donnelly in as much underwear as possible uh she still hasn't put a dress on and they come out and they are mourning and what do we see bonfire annie has shown up but she's not alone it's a lot of other touched women are there as well and it looks like they all came to the orphanage. It looks like what they had planned, the, the role of Mary's song, it all played out and it worked. And I took the last scene to mean, now I, I'm interested if you have a counter, I took it to mean through this tragedy, they have, they have accomplished something. They have brought together the touched and they have brought Bonfire Annie into the fold. Yes. Because she it, held up when, and it might have been because she heard the song again and she was touched by it. We established earlier in the episode that she did hear the song and it did affect her. She was just, she was putting it aside because she was saying it was fake. So maybe hearing it again sparked something in her. Or maybe it could just be the fact that she was murdered in cold blood and that, that Mary was murdered, that she's come over to the side. But either way, she throws the bonfire up, she throws the light up. They're all there mourning and it looks like she's into the fold. It definitely seems that what an event would, an event that everybody was assuming was a tragedy has now become a sacrifice towards a new future, yeah. and that's the direction they're going in. It's in, it's interesting from a filmmaking perspective is that they pan over everybody. It's a diver, it's a very diverse crowd of people. I think there's a couple guys there, but it's predominantly women that are present. It is interesting the camera focuses in on the one East Asian woman that's present, which I almost feel like is Joss Whedon just. Poking in the eye of his critics, saying, "Hey, hey, I cast Asian people in my shows every now and then. Stop making fun of me for this." Yeah, we did see her. Yeah, it was like she kind of looked like the um, the lady from Minari a little bit, the wife from Minari. Possibly, yeah. Um, and episode ends. This is the kind of bittersweet but semi-triumphal kind of moment of where they've lost what they thought was their hero, but. The hero's actions have brought everybody together in a way that may bring a new tomorrow. Now, I'm going to tell you this. If you think we're going to get any more explanation for why Bonfire Annie is now teamed up with Amalia, no. you're no. not getting it. No. That, they gave, in their mind, they gave it to you. 
So yeah. now she might as well be like she might as well be Penance. Like they are just locked in. They're all on the same team now. Did they write this show thinking they only had six episodes? Did they write right? it thinking that I don't know. That, that they would that they would be canceled mid season and had to have a complete arc right now? Because man, are they just blazing through this kind of stuff? They really are, and it'll be interesting. I mean, you know, we, we're getting six episodes, and then there's going to be a break, but we're guaranteed six more to round out season one. And I don't think this is—they're not billing this as a mini series; they're billing this as a series. So I think the expectation is there might be a season two. So I don't know, man. I don't know where they're going to go from here because they are flying, and the fact that they brought—I mean, I thought it was inevitable that Bonfire Annie would get with Amalia. I thought that was mm-hmm. that was going to happen eventually. I certainly didn't think it was going to happen at the end of episode three. I mean, this is kind. Of- I would have fully expected and endorsed this moment as the end of episode six. It's like the yeah. mid-season, as just mm-hmm. the mid-season climax kind of moment to, you know, come back to a few episodes. This is setting up a whole different arc than what they've set up before. They're going in a different direction. We're bringing together the Avengers kind of thing. And that would have given us like three episodes of other character and world building to then come up to this moment. So it felt a little bit less jarring. But that's not the moment they want to end this half season on. And I'm legitimately baffled and confused what that's going to be. I'm interested enough to find out, though. Okay. All right. So we, in the recap, let's get some general thoughts here on the episode. I want to know from you. Um, you did say that you gave the first episode a four and a half. I think you gave the second episode like a six, six and a half, something like that. Mm-hmm. Would you say that episode three landed above or below the mark set from episode two? It landed in the middle. So the- about a, about another six, six and a half for you? No, no, it landed not. I didn't. It, it, I did not enjoy it as much as episode two. Oh, interesting. Uh, it, okay. It, it ended in the middle of the other t- of episodes one and two in terms of what I felt about it. I thought it was st- it was an improvement over episode one, which I still thought was a bit of a rushed, jumbled mess. But it didn't have the kind. It didn't really have the time to give the kind of really good character moments that episode two was really having the time to explore. Episode two, as much as it jumped around, felt like the show was finally taking a bit of a breath and giving a chance to okay, let's. We've set everybody up. We've given you the whole collage. Now let's focus on a few pictures kind of thing. Episode This episode strongly suggests that's just not the show this is going to be. That they are going to barrel along. We're going to see images as we go. And you'll pick up pieces along the way. And that's not really what I look for in a show. And I'm a little bit disappointed to see they're going that direction. But this at least showed some really competent kind of filmmaking and some good character moments that we didn't get really see in the opening. Which is fun and give, gives me some tidbits to focus on as we do yeah i don't know man i um i'm gonna i'm gonna i give it the same rating i give episode two i i, I put it right about a seven seven and a half for me mm-hmm. and um because i i think that you know killing mary in episode three was bold <laughs> it was big it was you know it hell they, they got had. trending on twitter for it so mm-hmm. you know shout out to the show i think it did something it affected the fans and i have gotten to a point where like you know, we, we I mentioned this last episode, like we were doing this. I have to do the recap. I got to do the pod with you. So I got to do notes when I watch it. So I'm going to have to watch the show and I'm going to have to sit down and like bang out notes when I do it. But mm-hmm. it's now reached a point where I like in the mo- Monday mornings, I don't watch it Sunday nights, but Monday mornings I get up early and I just watch it for fun before mm-hmm. I start doing work. I, I, so it is a show that if we stop doing the pod tomorrow, which <laughs> we will not continue. do, we're here for you, ladies and gentlemen. I keep watching the show because I'm, in, I'm intrigued by it and I'm entertained by it. So it, yeah. it's, it's, it's accomplishing that. Yeah, for those, for those that are wondering, I'm the person that's locked underneath Lord Mastner, in this case, Lee's Mansion. I have no choice but to continue watching. And let's be fair. 
I actually do enjoy it. It's it is fun to watch. It has some good scenes. Even if I don't think it's necessarily going to be one of the greatest bits of television, it's still a fun watch for every hour on Sunday that I put into it. Yeah. So I mean, if you're if you're listening to this this review podcast, you probably like the Never. So please take our criticisms with the understanding that we do overall like the show. Like we're we're in mm-hmm. on the show. Like we're, so we're, we're we're criticizing. We're just trying to be honest, but. We're still in on the show. We still like it. So let's cut to Absolutely. our segments. We will go to best line of the episode. I and I alone am in for best line of the episode. Spencer, do you have any nominees for best line of the episode? I do. Would you like to go round robin or should I just go down my list? And you you go down your list and I'll jump in when I can. Okay. Uh, uh, you're a soldier and penance isn't one. She will be. Penance isn't one. She will be. That's a terrible fate to wish on a friend. Really liked that conversation between uh, Dr. Ratio Cousins and Amalia. And that was a really powerful kind of line about think how you're really molding these people and whether that's for their benefit or yours. I got one. I'm mm-hmm. so, this is Amalia to Horatio. I'm sorry I can't be more generous about being your mistake. As you said, that is a haymaker of a line. That is a hell it's of a, a response. It's a big to- and it puts you on the mat, TKO. Mm-hmm. It's such a hell of a response to all the shit that he was throwing away. Deserved shit from a certain degree, but she... Had a hell of a rejoinder. Um, couple from Lord Masson. The degradation of progress. We build homes to keep other people out and then build machines to let them all in. I, I'm kind of a curmudgeonly old enough, uh, curmudgeonly old man. I can kind of pick up where that's coming from. So I like that line. Mm-hmm. Um, another one from him. And Mrs. Beecham, you will, give your romantic, you will give up your romantic yin for a mistress. This house has all the company I can abide. Which that, coupled with the scene then of the, grave, the gravestones, gives us... An insight into the character that I hope they stick with, just because it, it sets up a, a fun degree of motivation for why he's going about the things that he does. Mm-hmm. Uh, going on from there, this is a line between um, Hugo and Frank, but Hugo saying to Frank, look at you, a shadow afraid of shadows. Such a lonely life. Oh, yeah? We're all your friends, then. Good hitting on both parts there. That you know, pretty good, pretty good boxing there for sure. I got one from the Beggar King. And now she's got a turn, a terrible fucking turn. Fire. And what have you got that can compete with that? You got fucking guns. <laughs> that was a funny line. I like that line. It's just like, please, it's oh, superhero movies. You have you have modern technology. Use it, damn it. Um, this is a line between um, as as the line when Doctor Cousins is uh healing our killer is this what molly's atonement looked like you think it's enough i think you blame her for something she couldn't control wonder who you'll blame when the time comes again fun back and forth it's really interesting to see people talk about amalia in a decidedly less positive light in many ways the light that she holds herself in uh do i have any others that's actually all i got on my list that's all i've got as well so that time of the episode where we align best line, we award best line of the episode episode three of the nevers best line is you're a soldier and penance isn't one yeah. she will be that's a terrible fate to wish on a friend i think it's it's a it's a great line it's a great back and forth and it's one of the best exchanges of the episode between two characters where i'm really genuinely interested in their backstory and where they're going horatio and amalia but mm-hmm. i also think that this line sets uh it, it gets to it's future looking right because it's it's establishing like they're gonna there's there's fights to come here in this war and who's going to be a soul what what is what is amalia going to do um in that 
in that war, right? Like she's she's out in front. She's obviously going to be fighting, but she's taking this tact of saying, "Hey, all of you turn, all of you touch people, come to me. I'm gonna I'm gonna protect you." But within that protection, how much is she going to expose them to this violence, to this fighting, to this this back and forth with with whatever the powers that be, if if, if it's Darth Lavinia or if it's Lord Masson or whoever the enemy is. How much is she going to do protecting and how much is she going to do like Avengers building? Let's all go fight. And I think it's a forward looking line in that way. And I think we got to see at some at some points in this episode that as much as she wants to, you know, bring 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 everyone together to protect them, she is only one woman and there are necessary limits on what she can do. And when she's not present, those that are also there aren't really equipped to do what needs to be done. And that's a problem if you're bringing all these people together for a common cause, that it can't just all be on Amalia's shoulders. She is not either physically, practically, or emotionally capable of handling that burden. Yep, so that was our segment of Best Line of the Episode. We will now cut to uh, Best Character Arc, and then we will go to Movie Prize. Spencer, who's your Best Character Arc of the Week? I, I can't say necessarily Amalia this episode. As much as she had, she had a lot of good scenes. I think she's still very much the protagonist of the show. She had some lot of good scenes attached to her. But I think Frank Monty pulled ahead a little bit this week. I think he had a really solid episode, a really solid degree of inter- interaction with the other characters. And we learned a hell of a lot about him and his background and why, why he does what he does and the demons that he bears. It was a, it was a powerful episode for Frank. Frank gets the win here for Spencer of the for the win of the week for character arc. My win is Horatio Cousins because you get the back you get the backstory with Amalia, the fact yeah, well we we had some hints, right, in episode one and two, but now we get it like solidified. They actually hooked up and he's married. I don't I don't think we knew he was married before uh, then, so that it was actually an affair. And then we also get, you know, him being pulled to take care of malady and and it's going to be interesting to see you know that door's been opened for malady and malady lives a life i think she's going to need a doctor here uh, in in future episodes so it's going to be interesting to see if she continues to go back to him um and uh and use him and if he if she continues to use him how will he how will he deal with that will he just be a doctor hippocratic oath situation and just take care of her or will he be the mole for amalia right in in malady's gang so there's a lot of stuff they can do with my main man Horatio, and he he fires off good lines as he goes. Hell, he's best line of the episode. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, shout out to Horatio. That's uh, my character arc of the week. I think it's a good call. I think for, I think Amali is always going to be at least in second or third, no matter where this is going, just because she gets the most plot line. But in this episode, it seems almost built around taking a bit of the wind out of her sails. I think that's going to change going forward. But this episode really cast a lot of aspersions upon her. That was an interesting call. Now. Booby Prize is going to be interesting. Booby Prize of the Week. Worst character arc for Episode 3. I, look, you, you pause you this. Dude, you pause it halfway through the episode. This this is really a tale of two episodes for me. Yes, if you was. pause this thing at 30 minutes in, I'm giving it to Hugo, bar none, for that atrocious mess that was the Ferryman's Club. And yeah. how he was operating and taking the shower. And he's like trying to hook up with... like He's, he's testing out this woman who... Which is a terrible phrase, but that's what he says. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, and he tryouts. Yeah, and he she knows the time, but she he wants her to like know a blue light. It is a fucking mess. The first thirty minutes with Hugo, but the scene with Mundy pulls him out of the weeds. I mean, you know, he reveals Mundy's secret. We re, we get to reveal that he's actually manipulating Mundy through his sexuality and his sexual history, and he's using that to 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 
bring in women to the ferryman's club. I, I found that interesting. And I, you know, I have some faith that the Hugo character, while he, you're going to get a lot of eye roll moments. <laughs> Look, yeah. that's not going away, folks. You're going to get a lot of eye roll moments from Hugo Swain. He, he, is, he does serve a purpose in the plot. Yeah, I mean, the purpose of the movie prize is not to be awarded the most despicable character, which Hugo may well be. Yeah. It is to award it to the worst plot line. In this episode, Hugo rose quick through the rankings just Absolutely. because of how integrally involved in the plot he is in a way we did not suspect. That he organized the police raid on the orphanage, and he did so for the purpose of recruiting to essentially create his own twisted version of a rival institution, his own equivalent of a safe haven where he can offer them jobs and protection, whatever else. That's fascinating. That's a that's an interesting involvement of him in this that I never thought we would get. I would assume he was just going to be the means by which HBO can have its necessary amount of fan service each episode, as he did as he served as a very diluted, the new, the less bars. Yes, <laughs> as he served as a very diluted, less interesting Mark Anthony kind of character. That's not the case. He's still going to be that. But he's pulling the strings in a way that is legitimately interesting. In a way that we I don't think we have a full world perspective on yet. So I don't think he can reasonably get the booby prize. What do you think about Malady this episode? I mean, she previously has gotten the booby prize before, but I felt some of her scenes with cousins were kind of interesting. And she, when she's lucid, she's halfway bearable. She seems to be that friend. We all have that friend. That if you get them one-on-one, they're okay. But if you get yeah. them in a group, they... Um, they're just a they're a different human being, um, mm-hmm. and they they become very showy and wanting attention and and hard to deal with. And Malady seems the type that if you can corner her, yeah, she's still nuts, but you know it's going to be you're going to get you're going to get much more reasonable lines as a total percentage of shit she's saying as opposed to you get her in public. So, yeah, I agree with you that like she was much more digestible in her conversation with Horatio. I found it much more interesting, but I just anticipate that we're going to get that. Anytime she's one-on-one with a character as opposed to, you know, those big public displays of criminality. Absolutely agree. So our pri- our prior two winners of the movie prize aren't, well, depending on who we're picking from here, uh, our two prior winners of the movie prize didn't get it. No. Who then takes it this time around for you? Booby prize this episode, I've got to give to Lord Masson. He has jack shit to do with the plot so far. It's it was, really disappointing. He seemed to be a complete distraction this episode. We had that absolutely non sequitur of a scene, which was like the, the gentleman's club where they're talking about finance or something. It, it comes to nothing, at least in this episode. Um, him being like old man on lawn yelling at Sky about telephones was like, yeah, well, it made you chuckle. But like, do you really need that crap mm. in this in this episode? Lord Masson, who I would have told you in episode one would be like a heavy hitter in this show. Mm. I thought he was the big boss villain. Now we've got Darth Lavinia in the house. Lord Masson been relegated. Uh, to a bit character, I give him the booby prize of the week. Who earns your booby prize, Spencer? I mean, we are required to disagree, so I can't pick Lord Masson, though it is a solid and very disappointing choice. I picked him, I, I'm pretty sure I picked him as my lead, as my favorite character arc in the first episode, just because of how what interesting things they were doing with him. But this episode, we have it very, very kind of bluntly revealed that, yeah, that was his daughter that we saw die in the first episode. Yeah, that possible motivation for him is working. We get some vague inclinations that implications that he has somebody locked in his basement underneath his house, probably touched, maybe his daughter, who knows. But we don't really get any forward momentum out of it. It's a solid choice. For me, Beggar King. 
Beggar King gets a movie prize. Okay, he, that's, that's fair. That that's that really really cringy scene where he's like yanking off the person's it, branded skin. They are coarse, cringy scenes that are just very much. Let's do all the kind of little check boxes played out to just do bright little flashing lights for this character. He has. Li- I don't know at all how he has any direct aff- affiliation to the plot at all, unless he can later provide them information that he's already refused to do. And uh, his enforcer made a much more interesting impression on me than sadly Nick Frost is playing is a great actor, but the character has done nothing for me so far. Also a good pick. So we've got um, for the booby prize this week, Lord Masson and the Beggar King. So I, I think, it, you know, it's interesting in choosing those. We really have established that like Darth Lavinia has elbowed out the other villains and relegated them to, to like very uninteresting places in the plot. Which is interesting because she hasn't really done that much herself yet. It's mostly been just, you know, we have the one major reveal and then we have a lot of implication. But at least that implication and pondering is interesting. At least we know she plays an integral role, integral role in the plot. But these other two, we have nothing really to hang on other than a little bit of straw. Now, I do think that of the two, Lord Masson has the most potential to come back next episode. I'm not sure we're Absolutely. ever going to be awarding best character arc of the week to, to Beggar King. I don't think that's in play. That's going to be a fun walk to get there if that's really going to be the case. I'm not sure what more they can do for that to make him just interesting and compelling, but they haven't found a way so far. Okay, you ready for new segment, Theory Time? I am ready, sir. Theory time with Lee. So this one I stole from Reddit. Uh, I came up with. It's a theory that um, tries to address why the hell Amalia was slapped in her face. Please, go on. So um, here's the general consent. And like all like theories that are created after the third episode of a series, it is half-cocked, but it, in, it is not fleshed out. But here's the... Here's, the thrust of it is that the alien spaceship that we saw was in fact an alien spaceship and it was it was an SOS situation it was crashing not of its own volition it was a crisis situation for that ship and what the little magic fairy dust things that we saw jumping off were actually aliens they were actually alien beings mm. and they were going they were going into co-inhabit humans so people who are touched or co-inhabited with an alien and that little power or whatever they have is the alien that's inside them. Why Amalia is different is because Amalia actually died. So what's in Amalia is just the alien. It's not co-inhabited. It's nothing because she was a dead body that it went into as opposed to a living human. And um, there you go. It, it, it's compelling. It's a little bit too Scientology for me because basically it's saying that these are thetans that are infesting people. But... It's an interesting thought, you know, I kind of find it interesting. It could play into the whole repeated line about this isn't my face or you change yes. faces kind of thing. That they, This isn't me, yeah, like the whole thing. It was shed her skin, that whole thing. Because she's, she's, she's just an alien in a host body. Uh, that, that could be interesting. She seems like she still has the memories, or at least vague recollections of events. It could be, it's, <laughs> the possessing spirit can apparently tap into a little bit of her consciousness, but... Hey, it's it's possible. It's interesting. It, it provides a bit of a different spin on what we saw before, and it raises some really fun questions about what that central orb thing is that's underground. Then, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it, you know, it could, that could still. I mean, that you know, that doesn't have to necessarily play in with that theory, right? Because that could still just be like 
an energy the, source. The alien battery. Yeah. For, yeah, an alien battery. Exactly. So that could still be what we kind of think it is. If this this theory about like these were actually aliens who were like 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 fleeing the wrecking ship um, and and jumping into host bodies. If this theory is true. How long would you give the show as a reasonable bet before they reveal this fact about Amalia? Considering the what we've seen so far, episode four. <laughs> Straight away. They're just fly, they're flying, dude. I don't know. I mean, honestly, maybe the end of episode six. I, I mean, the, the way they're going, they're going really fast. I mean, yeah, I mean, we, we've complained before about shows. Like, there were, certain, there were certain seasons of Game of Thrones that we complained that there was a lot of just kind of walking between one location and another. There was a lot of episodes that didn't necessarily have much in terms of forward momentum in them. The show doesn't have that problem. It may go, go, go too much in the opposite direction. Um, but I agree with you that if this is true, based on the current pacing, episode six is kind of like a shock to take us into the mid-season break. Seems like a reasonable call. Now, I will say that here's my... My, while we're on theories, I have a theory about the show overall, not about the plot, but about the show itself. As a production, or yes, what do you mean? as a production, okay. as it, as it's being created, I think I think we're dealing with Lost. I think what we have here is a show that has plotted out its first season, mm-hmm. and that's why it's going so fast, and why they're hitting all these marks. Like, I mean, they obviously have these beats they want to get to. They're getting there, and it's super tight and struck. I'm not tight, but like from a plot. Um, reveal perspective that like they, have, full, they yes. have their marks and they're hitting them um but i don't think they have any conception of what season three of this show looks like and, and then lost didn't either so we're, we're probably dealing with like a you know a, an unwritten book I mean, it's an even more interesting thing for them because the you know original showrunner writer is gone so even it's even more of an unwritten book in their case because they're bringing yeah. in a different writing team to handle it so that it's like I think Star it's Wars either. now. It's not even. It's not even Martin. Like it's not even like Game of Thrones. It's like Star Wars, where you're just like handing it off to somebody else to like finish writing the book. Yeah, and we can see kind of a mixed bag how that can result. But it also does give you the potential for a fresh start too, and a fresh perspective on what's been done so far. So it it is an uncertain future, but that could either be terrifying or invigorating. Who can say? Okay. Anything <clears throat> we've hit our we've done our recap, Spencer. We have. Told the people what we thought of this episode. We have hit our segments. Any closing thoughts here on episode three of The Numbers? I said, with how fast they're moving through it, there's a lot of different directions they can go from here, and it's going to happen quickly. And with everybody coming... Well, we say everybody, but correct me if I'm wrong. From what we heard from um, Penance, her amplifier worked for, what, a mile square or something like that? She said about a mile, yeah. It strongly suggests to me that there were a lot more touch than people even necessarily realized, because there looked like there were like a hundred people that were clustered in that kind of, you know, area behind the orphanage kind of thing. Looked like a lot of people, for sure, yeah. So it's very possible that this may not be as a minority of a condition as, as the ruling class likes to believe or even honestly believes, and that offers some interesting potential in its own right, too. I, sure. I'll be curious to see what they also do now with such an expanded cast. I mean, if they are now, you know, bringing in what appeared to be, originally they had what? How many people do you think were there in the orphanage originally? Two dozen kind of thing, something yeah, like that? Yeah, about that, yeah. We're increasing that by four or five fold, potentially. Mm-hmm. That's a that's an extensive cast to have around or on hand or about of things. And I'll be really curious to see how the show works that in, of just the orphanage is now full to the rafters. It is a full institution. What is that going to mean? What are they going to do with it? I don't know. I'm interested to find out. And will Darth Lavinia allow it? Will she allow all these people to come move in there? I mean, remember, she owns the orphanage. 
and this was actually a theory I was going to offer. Do I offer the theory that it was Lavinia that sent the assassin just because she's the only person that could know? She's the only person that knew that Mary was performing there. She's the only person with the political connections that we know to pull somebody out of prison that just assassinated well, the whole the only, people in opera. The only thing we know here, the only, the only, only little hiccup there, and it doesn't destroy the theory, but the guy gets busted out of prison before the scene where Lavinia is told that Mary uh, is going to be singing at the park. Very, very good point to note. Still, in my mind, ties it in just because getting him out is one thing. Giving him orders is another. And for, at least from what we've seen, Lavinia is the only person that knew that Mary was going to performing and the only person that would have the political power to get somebody out of prison like that. And the only person that seems, but with both of those other data points, to have a strong motivation to try to actually prevent the Touched from forming any actual protection that isn't outside of her immediate control. Because this gives the touch to kind of independent power and control and protection away from Lavinia in a way that she seemingly doesn't want, given that she's been kind of individually picking them off, if we assume that she's been responsible for the pamphlets and bringing them to that one facility, and a way that will now be much harder for her to do. So she's got the means, she's got the motive, she's got the opportunity, and I'm willing to bet if you fingerprint the gun, maybe she's affiliated with that too. Yeah, maybe. Uh, I, I like that theory. I'm... I'm... I would say that if if you, you you know you had odds on who sent you know handgun man, um, you, you, Lavinia is probably like a minus four fifty favorite. I mean she's got to be a huge favorite on the board for right. for who sent because I, I don't think it's Malady. I really don't. I don't think it's Malady because I just don't know who Malady. I don't still. I have a hard time believing the Malady's operating entirely independently. Um, I would be surprised if they go necessarily that route. It's possible. It makes her an even weirder character. But who she would be, you know, tied to, it's hard to say. The only two other two, you know, assumed string pullers that we have are Hugo, which I don't assume that he was really responsible for the whole thing, nor would have the political connections to get the guy out of prison, or Lord Masson, which we don't know He was know playing enough. the stock market, yeah, so he, he was he was completely preoccupied. So how, I don't know if he really assigned really anybody except Lavinia at this point, though, how, we just don't know enough to really say with any uh, confidence. Masson was gauging that GameStop stock. He did. He, he was very busy uh, on that roller coaster. He, that the eighteen ninety nine GameStop stock. You, you know, one forgets what just a really just solid blue chip institution that company used to be. <laughs> All right. Well, I think it's a good place to end it. Thanks everybody for uh, co- uh, listening to our coverage here for episode three on the Neversmore podcast of the Nevers. We will be back next week with episode four. In the meantime, we would love to hear from you. As said before, please go to mangumtalks.com, upper right-hand corner, click contact us, fill out the form, send it in. It will come straight to me. I will read it and we will possibly discuss it on the show. Uh, please check out any of our other podcasts. You can check them out at mangumtalks.com. And other than that, we'll see you next week. Bye.